to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, The Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, and yes, we are on Facebook and YouTube today. We are back on the air on Facebook and YouTube, so join us there. want to welcome everyone. I am your hostess with the most the radio chick, Annie, so effervescent today with my ever so intellectual and handsome sidekick. <laughs> Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. This is going to be an exciting show today. It looks like it's going to be, and I, I can't wait for our guests to come on so we can get some knowledge and, oh. and share that knowledge. Yeah. We have two great guests joining us today. We've got Bobby Lawrence, and he's been on the show many times before. He's got that website, protectyourvoteusa.org. And there has been a move on the popular vote movement, but there's also now a new pushback thanks to Bobby's effort and an effort of other people across the nation to push back on this attack on the Electoral College. We're going to be talking to him about that, a lot to talk about. And then we have a new guest, Eric Martin, who has an interesting book out called Liberation Day, his idea on how to return us to a constitutional republic. On paper, it looks good. We're going to be talking to him about that. I will have some challenging questions too for him. You know, I'm not someone to let things uh, sit on the side and let it ride. So, again, it's going to be an exciting show. So much to talk about. I want to welcome everyone that's listening in the studio as well as listening in in the chat room. I want to welcome you aboard. Uh, we'll get to all of you later. Um, as I said, Curtis, there is so much going on in the news to talk about. 
Yeah, so, uh, so much in the world. <laughs> so much in the world and the United oh, States geez. that's going on. No room to yeah, be bored. Yeah, yeah, we, we... <laughs> No, we're not going to be bored. <laughs> uh, we've got the Jeffrey Epstein episode out there, and uh, Acosta has resigned from uh, as labor secretary, even though his job as a prosecutor in the federal government at the time under Obama had nothing to do with what he has been doing serving under President Trump. Still, the uproar has called for his head, and he has, as a gentleman, backed out. And Obama's, uh, not Obama's, oh, God, hit me with a wet noodle. President Trump. (laughs) Uh, speech today uh, up that we saw up in Fox News. Uh, he said, I know him as my Secretary of Labor. I don't know him in the other capacity. This is what I hired him for. This is what I interviewed him for. And it, it was well done. And, you know, let's see what happens in the end. Uh, there's a lot of questions that are going to be raised in this issue. And you're going to see as Nancy Pelosi's daughter wrote on Twitter, we're going to see a lot of liberal uh icons of the community are falling pretty quick. Uh, Anyway, before we get started, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Agent Alfred Zenyet Perez. Uh, who was killed in the line of duty on February 15th of this year in Puerto Rico. Uh, And I don't have a lot on this. And it really bothers me sometimes when I am doing a dedication, I cannot pull up a lot of information on the hero that gave his or her life in the line of duty to protect and serve. So please forgive me if this sounds a little stilted, But this is coming from Defense Maven at Blue Lives Matter out of San Germain, Puerto Rico. And as I pull up the dedication, it reads, Puerto Rico Police Department agent Alfred Zenyet Perez was murdered in the line of duty by a drive-by gunman. Agent Zenyet Perez, 52, was conducting an undercover operation outside a grocery store on Puerto Rico Route 330 at approximately 8.30 p.m. when someone in a passing car drove by and opened fire, according to the Officer Down Memorial page. Agent Zenyet Perez, an 18-year veteran of the force, was fatally struck at least once in his torso, Primera Hora reported. A bystander outside the store suffered a gunshot wound to the right hand, according to El Nuevo Dia. The suspects fled the scene in a dark-colored car and have not been located. Police said they do not believe the shooting was related to the undercover operation. The business had been shot at before, and investigators are also looking to whether or not someone else who was at the store at the time of the shooting might have been the actual target. Agent Zenyet Perez joined the police force in 2001 and was assigned to the Drugs Division Ayeko in 2010. Governor Ricardo Rosello Naveres ordered the flags be lowered at half-mast in the slain officer's honor. 
El Nuevo Dia Report. In memory of Officer Alfred Zinet Perez, and in remembrance of all those who have given their lives in defense of the Puerto Rican people wearing the honorable uniform of our police, I decree a day of mourning, Muzello Navarez said. Agent Zinet Perez leaves behind his wife and four children, according to the Officer Down Memorial page. On the Officer Down Memorial page were several remembrances, and I think each one is poignant. Today is a month of your sad and painful departure. It has been a difficult process watching our four children cry inconsolably, even your other daughter. It's very hard because you are no longer physically the face of omnipotence in the face of reality, and the emptiness that you leave in the family is immense. I try to be strong so that they are strong, but everything breaks my soul. Although we were divorced, we got married 25 and built a lot. Among them, your dream of being a policeman, and now I see why you put that happy face on the day they accepted you. It was a hard process because you had not finished your fourth year to apply, and then we got down to work. We supported you. We helped you finish your high school, and you were behind your dream. You achieved it. And although today we suffer your loss, celebrate your achievements, and that you take care of our children and granddaughters from heaven, I know it gave you time to give your soul to God. I know. God was already dealing with you, and I take you doing what you most passionate about your work. You are a hero. You were never a policeman of the age of 15 and 30. You were a policeman of passion for what you did and did a lot until you gave your life for your passion. I congratulate you on all your achievements, and I promise to watch here on earth for our children and grandchildren. I will always watch you remember how you know the great police and dad that you were. Rest in peace. See you soon. From his ex-wife, Marizita. Today's show is dedicated to Agent Alfred Zinier Perez. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate to them, to the brave men and women that serve from the birth of this nation through today and into his future as our military. We never say thank you enough, and may God bless each and every one. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing Grace.
And we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, you know who I am, the radio chick, your hostess with the mostess, Annie, along with my co-host, the author and erudite individual, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, I have to be creative. Come on. (laughs) I want to welcome everyone that's up in the chat room joining us. Also over in the studio, of course, you know, if you're in the studio calling in, if you want to participate, please press one. Otherwise, we will assume that you are listening in. We have the chat rooms going up on Facebook as well as up on YouTube. So please uh, feel free to join us over there. I will try to keep looking over at Facebook and chat room every now and then uh, and the uh, YouTube chat room. So if you see me, you're watching me, my head swivels. I'm trying to be everywhere at once. Anyway, <laughs> Curtis, so much to talk oh, yeah. about, so much to do. Um, but I, I wanted, I came across a bunch of articles that I actually thought um, was really, really interesting before we get Bobby Lawrence to call in. Because like I said, there's so much going on out there that we don't get a chance to talk about everything that's going on out there in the news and, you know, we're we're getting assaulted by the LBGTXYZ LMNOP community, especially with the transgenders. And it, it's gotten to the point where uh, my husband and I were talking last night, and um, I love this man. I really do love my husband uh, because we do think along the same, same page. Uh, there was this uh, hubaloo, I don't know what else to call it, but this 10-year-old kid, uh, he had ended up posing in this picture with a transsexual, I don't know what you would call it, but the individual was naked with his male limb exposed, and wow. here you've got this 10-year-old boy dressed up as a girl, as a drag queen, uh, posing in this picture with this man fully exposed. Now, this is a 10-year-old boy, and this is my question I posed to my husband. Because they're going after Jeffrey Epstein, and there's now um, was was that Bobby, what, what's that singer performance that R also Kelly. got busted now for, uh, uh, yeah, R. R. Kelly, whatever his name is, R. Kelly, 
uh, he got busted. Yeah, he got and it, it seems like it, it, they're finally going after these sexual predators. My question to my husband was, why wasn't the parents of this 10-year-old boy arrested for allowing this boy to pose in this picture? Why weren't the parents of this 10-year-old boy arrested for child abuse in allowing him to dress up as a drag queen without, you know, there's got to be more to the story behind this. Now, why isn't the individual that posed next to this 10-year-old boy arrested for exposing himself? Why wasn't the individual that took the picture arrested for promoting pornography and publishing pornography? Why is the individual that published this photograph not arrested for promoting pornography and publishing pornography? And yet, this picture was making the Internet rounds just a week ago. And I'm sure if you Google it, you're going to find this picture of this 10-year-old boy posing with this naked transsexual, transgender, or whatever the heck he is. You know, we're allowing sexual deviation to become the the public norm. And no one is crying out about it. You know what they're going to say, that that was just an educational moment. You know, we, we would call it indoctrination. It was a learning moment. Educational. <laughs> That's what they would say. Educational moment. Now, yeah. God forbid. <laughs> indoctrination. I, I download. God forbid I download a phishing file through my email, and unbeknownst to me, is a virus or a worm or something attached to it. They may plant a picture onto my computer without my knowing it, which it's possible. It can happen. It has happened. A virus gets, and it opens a portal to a porn site, and God forbid someone who did that dials the local police or the FBI or whatever and says, hey, you got to check out this individual's computer because they got pornography on their computer. they got child porn. I'll end up being arrested for something I'm unaware of being on my computer and prosecuted. But someone who does this blatantly in the public forum, no one touches them. You see the double standard here? It's always a double standard with the left. Maybe triple. It is is a huge double standard. And and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up, because the double standard is so global. It really I don't even know why it boggles my mind anymore. I don't even know why I'm amazed at this anymore. But the Flag and Cross published this article, which was originally up in the blaze, and so they republished it. And it talks about a Christian doctor who refused to call. Now catch this, Curtis, because you're over six foot. You're a pretty hefty guy. You're not an ounce of fat on you. Trust me. A six-foot-tall bearded man, this doctor refused to call a six-foot-tall bearded man, madam, and he instantly loses his job. Now, it turns out the doctor, Dr. David Matherick, a Christian doctor residing in the U.K., oh, surprise, surprise, the U.K., liberal U.K., lost his job after he stood on his principles and refused to call a six-foot-tall bearded man madam, stating he couldn't do so in good conscience due to his beliefs. This is the kind of insanity that the world is embracing. All right? 
The 56-year-old physician, the Blaze reports, was working as a disability benefits assessor. Now, catch this. You've got a man, a doctor working in a disability uh, agency. So how much do you want to bet that this six-foot-tall man, the hypothetical six-foot-tall bearded man, is applying for disability because he identifies as a woman? Mm. There's, there's an undercurrent to this story. This is, this is my hypothesis. Don't, don't, don't take it as fact. This is what I am, I am guessing. I'm reading between the lines. So, and they probably um, get it, too. Disability sure. For the Department of Work and Pensions. This is what you have when government takes over everything. Reports that a superior asked him, if you have a man six foot tall with a beard who says he wants to be addressed as she and Mrs., would you do that? All right. According to Macarth, a 30-year veteran of the healthcare industry, he said he would not use transgender pronouns and insisted that the concept of transgenderism is a delusional belief and that he disbelieves and detests. Macrath, who now works, so he does have another job, as an emergency doctor in Shropshire, said that he was previously warned that he was discriminating against people by invalidating their preferred gender pronouns, that he could eventually lose his job as a result that he did not call transgender people by their preferred names. Good for him. He stood up for his principles. And good for the for the hospital that hired him, despite the fact he violated the liberal policies of the government over there. And he is actually, believe it or not, he is countersuing because he says, you're violating my freedom of religion. This is my religious belief. And because you fired me for my religious beliefs, you violated my rights. And good for him. Good for him. But this is this so is, this have, is the road uh, we're going down. They have freedom of religion over there in, in Great Britain. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not that. too much lately. <laughs> <laughs> not too much because you know in Canada, uh, this was uh, published in Big League Politics. But where was this originally? Um, where the heck was this originally? I, I want to give the proper. Um, credit to the article and just forgive me if I don't uh, because I don't see where this was originally published but Big League Politics republished this Um, they're stating that Canadian Broadcasting Corporation will be broadcasting the documentary Drag Kids to other children to adopt this depraved lifestyle Uh, it turns out that a pastor up in Canada decided to protest this drag kids uh, TV show. And he was doing a peaceful protest, and he was filming it. Well, guess what? The Christian pastor named David Lynn was arrested and charged with disturbing the peace with derogatory comments for preaching the word of God on a street corner in Church Wesley Village in Ontario, uh, in Toronto, Ontario. He was harassed by a mob of LGBT activists, then arrested by law enforcement and hauled off in handcuffs. 
and a grim sign of what is to come under leftist regime of tolerance and diversity. So this is where our free speech is going. If Canada, you cannot even stand on the street corner and preach the word of God. Instead, you hold off in handcuffs because you don't believe in the lifestyle that someone else is promoting as normal. And you say, this is not what the gospel teaches us. This is what the God Listen to the word of God. You, you don't have to listen. You can walk away. It was a public street corner. You know, you don't have to stand there. But instead, they stood there. They heckled him until finally enough of them made such a hubaloo. The police said, to the innocent pastor, not to the people causing the ruckus and harassing him and heckling him of disturbing the peace. No, to the pastor that was standing there just preaching the word of God. And, you know, this has been happening here in the United States too, Curtis, because when I moved here to this town almost 20 years ago, we would have downtown on the corner preachers. And come Saturday, Sunday morning, you'd be walking downtown, doing your shopping, you having to go for a bite to eat or heading to church or whatever. And there would mm-hmm. be a street preacher on the corner preaching the word. You may not have agreed with everything he said. And some of them were a little bit too extreme. Uh, some of them a little odd. But, you know, you just it was part of the neighborhood. It was part of the scenery. And, hey, it's what happens on a Saturday, Sunday morning. But instead, the community got in a uproar. They're creating a disturbance. Gee whiz, he's waking me up before 10 a.m., uh, gee, the store's open at 8, 9, and 10. I thought the cars going up and down the public street would be disturbing enough. But now the, pre- the preacher on the corner waving the Bible and preaching the word of God is more disturbing than the pollution and noise of the traffic and pedestrians below. This is what has happened. In order to chase, chase the preachers off the corner, they've used these disturbing the peace ordinances. And no longer do you have freedom of speech in the public forum. Well Fun. you look Isn't at um you look at Antifa or Antifa, however you pronounce that, they don't believe in free speech either, you know, unless you're agreeing with them. It doesn't make sense, you know. They don't like what you're saying and they want to beat you up. Well, I'll tell you guys, uh, if not in tomorrow's newspaper, maybe in Sunday's, uh, you may see my smiling face <laughs> in handcuffs on the front page next to my husband. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, 8 o'clock tonight. Uh, we have downtown in Beaufort here what they call a water fest. It's an annual festival. Uh, because there's water fest going on downtown, the League of Women's Voters decided to have a protest Now, there's a drawbridge that separates downtown from where I live. And on the side of my side, they're going to host a protest for the administration's immigration policies, uh, detesting and decrying the inhumane conditions that these illegal aliens are suffering from on the U.S. side of the border. Uh, We all know that the immigration and uh, border agents are bending over backwards, doing jobs that they're not trained to do, to be nursemaids, to be babysitters, to be uh, on the scene, emergency uh, medical technicians. They are building shelves to stock baby food and clothing and blankets. That's not their job. You get a maintenance guy to come in to build the shelves. They're building makeshift Entrances, so as these people come through the processing area, they're not out in the hot sun. 
You've got these men and women doing jobs other than law enforcement and processing of these individuals. They're, they're doing jobs as changing diapers, feeding kids, finding blankets and clothing people and cleaning them up and feeding them. These are not their job descriptions. This is not why they became immigration agents or border agents. They went to enforce the law, but instead they're doing above and beyond the call of duty. And what is even more so, their spouses are there on the front line with them. The husbands and wives are joining them. If shelves need to be built, if beds need to be erected, if linen needs to be changed, they are there. They're not being paid for this. This is out of the kindness of their hearts. So this league of women voters are doing a protest against these brave men and women out there doing an impossible job and doing everything and anything to prevent federal funds going to these men and women on the border. Moreover, they are blocking funds to going to nonprofits, such as Wayfair sending beds to a nonprofit so that they're not sleeping on the floor. They're sleeping on a bed with blankets and sheets. But no, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't give money to give them these. No, no, no. Let's just keep them in these horrible, deplorable situations. Let's stop the money. Let's stop the money for diapers, for food, for, for medicine, for clothes, for shelter. No, no, let's stop the government money from helping these people because it's the Trump administration. How dare they? So we are doing a counter-protest to these idiots. We will be out there wearing our Trump hats, waving our flags, and supporting our president and his immigration policy, and supporting the men and women on the border doing an impossible job. That's where I will be tonight. If I walk out in handcuffs, I will walk out in handcuffs, but I will stand my ground. No comment, Curtis. We're going to need you here next week. We're going to need you here next week. So I'll save up some bell money. Here's my Trump hat. If you're watching, I've got my Trump hat. I got my Trump hat. It's going to the protest with me. I've got my flag. We got a big one. I've got my little one. I've got my Gadsden flag. We will be there. My got a and, I, and my stepson. Absolutely. Do you have a, I've got two Do you of have them. a Make American Great hat? You got two? Oh, okay. I've got a red one. I've got the white one that I just showed up on the uh, the video screen. And I've got a Trump 45 presidential hat. We will have all three there. <laughs> so we'll be on the front lines tonight, putting our money where our mouth is. So we're waiting for Bobby Lawrence to call in. So hopefully he'll be calling in shortly. Uh, but... Uh, you can see, folks, I'm feeling better. I'm on a rant. <laughs> I'm definitely yeah. feeling a lot better. Well, what do you um, think about that uh, AOC-Nancy Pelosi um, feud? <laughs> like every other day, one smacking down the other. Oh, you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. I mean, it it just... I just sit back and just watch the show go on. I mean, you can't get better theater than these people doing what they're doing. 
You know, Nancy Pelosi picks out four Democrats she can't stand and says, well, see, the four of them, they only have an audience of four, meaning just the four of them amongst themselves. Quiet. Uh, and then AOC shoots back. It's like, oh, I'm the martyred soul. See what they do to me. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. It ain't getting any better than this. Well, AOC better listen to Nancy's you. daughter. Nancy's daughter said um, <laughs> her mother can cut you before you realize uh, you're bleeding, cut your throat, or cut your head off, one of those. So she better watch her step. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Better watch her step. I mean, but Nancy Pelosi, hey, don't underestimate her. I mean, she's battle-hardened. Uh, she may look a little weak at times. She's battle-hardened. She takes a step back. She looks at the situation, and she says, well, I can't attack it this way, but can I look at it from this angle? And she is a, a, a – I'm trying to say the word. I'm not going to do it. She knows someone how, how, how to play the strategy. She's in there for the long game. AOC doesn't understand the long game. Now, I see some new numbers popping up in the studio. If this is one of our guests, please press 1. Otherwise, I'm going to assume that you are a listener because there's a new number in there I don't recognize. Uh, So, obviously, he he fooled me from a different area code. So, let's bring on – and I do believe this is Bobby Lawrence, is it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Hey, Bobby. You fooled me. All right. You called me from a, a different number, so you got you, you fooled me. You yeah, I did. I didn't think so, boys. Yeah. My only cell friend that I didn't ready to die. We've we've got a shake up up here in Pennsylvania, presidential tweets in the whole nine yards. And my other phone is my my seven one seven number. That has been blowing up all morning. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you have time to go into that or not, but that was uh, we had a shakeup up here in our in our Republican Party. What's going and there on? There was a race. There was a race for chair, and the campaign, the Trump campaign, got involved in the race and endorsed the candidate. And the, the the people in the state wanted the Republicans wanted someone different than what the campaign wanted. So finally, there was some communications that happened over the past couple of days, and finally the. The campaign and president lined up with what the people in, in the state wanted, and uh, everybody's excited now because it looks like we've got a fantastic team going forward. So, yeah, it was a lot of work, but we, we finally got it put together, and now we're a unified party in Pennsylvania moving forward. So it's a good thing today. That's good news. Well, you were running for chair. I gathered that you didn't make it then. No, no, I, w- I was not running for chair. No, Lawrence Tabus, it's just he got the – his first name is Lawrence, and my last name is Lawrence. So everybody kept saying Lawrence and thinking it was me, but it wasn't me. It was the gentleman's name is Lawrence Tavis, that's running for chair of the Pennsylvania GOP, and my name's Bobby Lawrence, and I was a U.S. Senate candidate here in Pennsylvania in uh, in 2018. So that's that is uh, the confusion. So who got the chair now? Lawrence Tavis is the chair. And that's who you wanted, correct? Yes, that's who we wanted. That's who we wanted. He's a pro-Trump. He's a pro-Trumper. And he actually um, worked for the campaign 
he was the campaign's representation here in Pennsylvania. There was a lawsuit that had to take place, or that had taken place, and uh, we had to take it to court to get the Trump, President Trump's name on the ballot here in Pennsylvania. And Lawrence Tavis was a key person in that lawsuit to help get the president's name on the ballot here in Pennsylvania in 2016. Well, you know, so it's, it it's funny because right now New York State passed, yeah, New York State just passed that law that anyone that wants to be on the presidential ballot has to submit their income taxes. Now, the question would be, is that constitutional? Because that now places a means test to running for office. <laughs> So you, you don't have a means test for religion. Why would you have a means test for finance? Right. Well, I mean, what they did was basically they extended the financial reporting. Uh, this is very basic, okay? They extended the financial reporting that's required for someone that's running for the United States Senate. See, as a as a candidate for the United States Senate, you have to fill out um, a um, – Financial disclosure statement. So when they're to, when they're extending that to mean the taxes, it could mean a balance sheet. It could mean a summary of the taxes. I mean, Donald Trump's tax returns are tens of thousands of pages long. So I cannot see him having to submit, you know, ten thousand pages of a tax return you know, a federal tax return to the state of New York. I just can't see them requiring that. Now, of course, they might be trying to do that, but but anyhow, what's going to happen is the courts will it'll wind up in the court system. But I can't see oh, where, absolutely. where it could absolutely. be. I mean, I could see a financial disclosure <laughs> as far as making sure where your money's coming from in your campaign, but I, I, I wouldn't see, I can't see where they're, you know, where that, where that would hold up in court. The crazier things have happened. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, it has. Now, Bobby, you and I got together, thanks to uh, Curtis here that hooked us up, uh, because you you got wind of this national popular vote movement that was picking up steam. And it was working in the background since 2000 with the hanging fads over the Bush Gore election. And over the years, they've been building a machine that has been barreling ahead. Uh, but you seem to have thrown a little bit of a monkey wrench into it, haven't you? Yes, we have. We have we have uh, we have thrown a huge monkey wrench into it. Um, like I said, uh, like we had talked earlier on the program, you know the um, the movement started in 2000 2002. It's kind of formalized and, and gained steam. And, of course, uh, by the time, by 2016, when Donald Trump won the election, at that time they had 172 delegates, and, and that was then. Well, now they have 196. Over the past two years, of course, I started a Facebook group and, and started a, a group of grassroots volunteers and we've been fighting them across the country. Now, just this past year, this year, okay, this, when I say year, I'm talking about the legislative cycle, and that, that usually lasts about six months. And some states are bicameral, some states are unicameral, uh, one state's unicameral, but they, they have um, a biannual, which means 
their legislative session runs for two years. So um, anyhow, this, this, this last cycle, we were able to stop them from passing the legislation in 12 states. And they won four states. So right now they're at 196 delegates, electoral delegates out of the 270 that they need. So they're, they're, they're gaining ground, although we've slowed them down significantly. They are gaining ground. We're not funded. We don't have any money to fight this. It's just volunteers, you know, throughout the country. And there's, there's about 6,000 of us now. That, we've, that have, we have grown from a, a group, original core group of 12. Uh, we've grown the group to 6,000 volunteers now across the country. And uh, we haven't formalized anything to be able to raise any money to fight them. Now, when I say them, these are mainly leftists, New World Order, New World Order globalist type individuals, and some Republicans who are ignorant enough to fall for their story. So what we our main thrust and our main thing has been educating people to the attack that's been coming on our electoral college, the way we elect our president, and we're educating people and, and getting the word out. Now, we do have um, a, a, a group, an organization called Turning Point USA in the country. When I say we, I mean we as a nation. We have an organization uh, called Turning Point USA that's headed up by Charlie Kirk and uh, another young lady that you might know, her name is very familiar on the news headlines, is Candace Owens. And those are the two main figureheads or leaders of that group at Turning Point USA. Charlie Kirk became aware of this and started paying attention to it, oh, I'd say two months ago. And he has since made it one of the groups their organization's main thrust is the educational part of teaching their their volunteers and the people that are in their organization about the electoral college, about the national popular vote attack that's on that's that's happening right now across the country. You know, it's the attack on our republic form of government. You know, we're a republic. We're not a democracy. When you listen to these politicians and you listen to people on the news and the pundits, every time they call us a democracy, they're being intellectually dishonest. Nowhere in the founding documents did the, did the, did the word democracy ever get written because the founding fathers, they knew the dangers of a pure democracy. You know, we're a republic, and explaining to people and teaching people what the difference is between a republic and a direct democracy is paramount to individuals understanding the attack on our electoral college, on our federal system of electing the president of the United States. So Turning Point USA is going to be, you know, working, you know, in conjunction with our effort, and that is educating the public about the attack, about a republic form of our government, and why we have a bicameral system, what the proper role of the federal government is. And so it's basically a, a, a refounding of our country as it was formed and as it has, has become, you know, um, diluted over time. You know, education, the kids aren't taught it in school, you know, at any great depth. 
And uh, that's something that we've got to change. No, people so don't understand the Electoral College. People don't understand the Electoral College because, you know, when I was growing up in high school, these were things that were taught to us. And the idea our founding fathers had as a republic was to give each state in the union an equal voice. Now, you would think that an equal voice would be two votes per state like we have in the Senate. But when you look at the demographics of each state, you have some states with large urban areas and other states with large rural areas. One, Some states outweigh the others in that manner. So they said, well, let's look at this mathematically so that we don't have large urban areas such as San Francisco. Of course, these cities were not in existence with our founders, but they realized Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York, Boston, these large urban areas, these four areas could control all 13 colonies. And they said, that's not fair because you've got all these people out in the rural areas, whether or not they're plantations, whether or not they're, they're farmers, whether or not they're herders growing you know, uh, livestock. You know, they also need an equal voice. So how do we do this? that each state has an equal chance to have their voice heard in a presidential election. And they came up with the idea of the Electoral College. Now, you hear with these last few elections, especially with Trump beating out Hillary, I mean Hillary, um, she had the popular vote. She should have been. Yeah, she had the popular vote in a minor area of the country. And if you look at how many counties and states voted for Trump, compared to how many counties and states voted for Hillary, there's an overwhelming difference. And the founders foresaw this, didn't they? Yes, they did. You know, the the Electoral College worked just perfectly the last time in 2016. Donald Trump won 30 states, and Hillary Clinton won 20 states. You see, the very basic thing that we have to go back to and understand is the office of the president was created to serve the will of the states. It was never intended to serve the people directly. See, in a republic form of government, we have a representative, a constitutional representative republic. Now, I'm going to give, you know, go real basic here because I have to because and I, I have this conversation with politicians. I have this conversation with candidates who want to run for public office and they seek my endorsement. And the first thing I ask them is, okay, you want to be, what do you want to be? I want to be the senator. Whether it's a state senator or a U.S. senator, the first principle of a senator is the same. Whether it's a state rep or it's a U.S. representative, the first principle is the same in a republic form of government. You see, if you look back to the founding of our nation, the biggest thing, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that the patriots fought for was something that is intangible. You cannot put your fingers on it. You can't see it. You can't. Go anywhere and view it. You can't find it with a microscope. It's something that you feel. And that's something that the founding fathers, the founding patriots of this great nation, 
That something was called freedom. You see, the founders understood that we must have personal freedom to exercise our individual liberty to pursue the happiness as we define it within a common rule of law. That is the only reason that this country was founded and that government was created to secure personal freedom and individual liberty for ourselves and our posterity. That is the single idea, the intangible. If I told you or asked you to go find freedom somewhere and bring it back and put it on the kitchen table, you could not do that, could you? No. However, however, you feel it when you wake up in the morning and you put your shoes on. You either feel free or you feel oppressed. You feel marginalized, minimalized, run down. Those are things you can feel, the tangible things. That's the feeling. So that's what this government was founded on. Now, they came up with a brilliant idea of a bicameral system which means you have a House and you have a Senate. And the Senate, their first responsibility, their first duty, their sacred duty is to jealously guard. This is the way the founders talked about it. This is how they spoke back then. Their first duty, their first principle is to jealously guard the sovereignty of the municipalities and the towns and the boroughs that you represent. The first duty, the first responsibility of a House, U.S. House of Representative member or a State House representative, they're called representatives for a reason, the first duty of a representative is to jealously guard, to jealously protect individual freedom of the people they represent. Because without a sovereign town, a sovereign county, a sovereign state, a sovereign nation, personal freedom can never be guaranteed. And people think about the power structure in this country nowadays versus the way it was looked at during the founding of our country. During the founding of our country, there was always, and it's been a battle that's been waged ever since. Ever since the founding of our country, there have been patriots that have been fighting to keep the power structure at the grassroots level. You see, the towns came, people came together and they formed cities and they formed towns. Those towns and cities came together and they formed a county. Several counties came together, and they formed a state. Those states, those 13 original states, came together, and they formed a federal government. Each level was formed to secure the personal freedom and the individual liberty of the people who reside in them. So the power structure as we look at it today 
all the power is at the top. It's at the federal government level. And the biggest reason is because the, the, the federal government has the power in the pocketbook. The 16th Amendment, thank you, Woodrow Wilson, gave the federal government supreme power over your earnings and your wages. It gave them the supreme power to take your money before you ever get it. It gave the federal government the supreme power to lock you out of your bank account, put you out of your house, take your cars and everything you own without a warrant from the federal, from a judge. They don't have to prove you did anything wrong. They just have to have an opinion that you did something wrong. And they can take everything you own, and you have to find some way to get it back and prove you were innocent, that you don't owe them any money. Now, that happened in 1913 with the 16th Amendment. Because direct taxation was not constitutional until then. So when you look at, at how the federal government got to be so powerful, it really gained power because of that one thing, was when they started taking your money and they had power of the purse, and then the federal government went, went crazy with the entitlement state and the welfare state. We'll take from some to give to a few, and we'll keep most for ourselves. And that's how the federal government has become so powerful, because of money. Money influences. Money buys persuasion. And since then, everything's upside down now. The federal government is supreme. When you look at the states, the states created the federal government, and they have become subservient to the entity which they created to serve them. So the power structure in a republic form of government was always meant to be with the people, never with the hierarchy. If you drew it all out on a piece of paper, it would look like a pyramid with the president sitting at the top and all the individual people down at the bottom underneath the pyramid. The way the founders thought about that was to turn that thing upside down. All the people, all the towns, and then you move down and it get, the pyramid base gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay, so that's the proper way to look at federal government. And, and that's what a, a, a republic form of government is. When you have a direct democracy for your, for your most supreme, your most powerful leaders, you have groupthink and mob rule. Now, you spoke very eloquently of it when the founding fathers wanted to ensure that we didn't have a certain mindset or certain belief subjugating another belief system. Now, if you look at, the, at California, let's take Southern California, L.A. County, and then let's take New York okay. City. Take it. Take it. What do the people think? How do the people think in those two areas? Because half the population in the country lives in those two areas. Okay? If you look at how they think, do they think the same way that we do in the, in the flyover states about the Second Amendment? They don't see a reason for a farmer, a rancher in Texas or, one of the, or South Carolina or Florida to have a, a gun in the backseat of their truck.
They don't see a reason for that. Where a rancher in in, in, the, in the South Carolina or, or Texas, if you get out of the truck at the wrong time of day, at the wrong place, you could get attacked by a wild boar, a feral pig, that has tusks four inches long that, will, that can tear your leg off in a split second. They don't see a reason for that farmer, that rancher, to have that firearm. Someone who lives in an apartment building on the 35th floor in New York City does not understand why you need to have four acres of ground with a stream on it. They think differently about property rights. They think differently about privacy. They think differently about the Second Amendment. They think differently about freedom of speech, the right to petition the government. They think differently about the role of the government because they depend so much on the government in the city. So if you think about the Electoral College, what it does is it, it, it spreads out the power of the vote from sheer population to, to the states as a, as a whole being represented. It rep- the Electoral College represents not just plants and trees and, and, and sheer open lawns. What it represents is the population because that's how we got the 535 of them, that, that I think it's around 535 lawmakers we have now, was based on population. And that, that's how we got the, the same amount for the, for the electors. The Electoral College was based on population. Now, I think it was in the 20s, in the round of the 1920s, that the Congress decided that it would be a good idea to freeze those numbers. So when you hear the argument coming from the people that support the national popular vote movement, that, oh, well, California is underrepresented because, you know, um, Iowa has X number of electoral college votes, and that's representing seven electors for every electoral college vote. But we have a larger number. We're only getting represented three. So it's a three to seven ratio. It's not fair. Well, we can change well, that. Bobby, I want to interrupt you just for – Bobby, I want to yeah. interrupt you a little bit just to, to make a clarification. House of Representatives, I was going to say 436. It actually happens to be 435 in the House of Representatives. But the most important thing about the Electoral College that our founding, fathers, our founding fathers gave us is diversity of idea. They realized that Absolutely. throughout the country, what goes in Iowa will not go in Florida. What goes in Maine will not go in Texas. There is a diversity of ideas throughout the country. And in order to represent that diversity, the Electoral College was formed. The one thing I am disappointed with in our founding fathers is that they should have made a way in which the allocation of the votes of the individual states, whether it is winner-take-all or percentage, they should have said these are the two or three formats in which you allot your electoral uh, college votes and restrict it so that each state can say, all right, fine, it's going to be if 51 plus one stay for Trump, then the state goes for Trump. Or if it's 70 percent to 40 percent, then we elect 
our, we, uh, a lot of our delegates 70 to 40 or whatever it is, 70 to 30. My math is a little off today. But they didn't take it one step further. And consequently, what has happened is this um, popular vote compact that is sweeping the country. And they are taking it and using a portion of our Constitution, the state compacts, the compacts that states can form between themselves outside of the federal government, and saying, let's say, all right, fine, the Constitution doesn't tell us how to allot our electoral delegates. So we're going to say that if the popular vote goes for Hillary and not Trump, then every single one of our delegates, doesn't matter how you vote within the state, it could be 20% goes for Hillary and 80% goes for Trump. But if the popular vote goes for Hillary, the hell with the 80% that voted, your votes don't count. We go for Hillary. And that is what we're facing now. That is correct. And that is, that is exactly what the legislation does. You know, and a lot of folks, when I speak about this or post on social media about it, I get a tremendous amount of folks who say it's in the Constitution. They can't do that. The Supreme Court will save us. The Supreme Court will stop it. Can't President Trump stop it with an executive order? These are all things that, that are, are you know, your first response would be they can't change the Constitution. Well, the fact is the Constitution leaves it up to the states. And then I get people bring up the Tenth Amendment and the Twelfth Amendment. Well, here's the here's the challenge with that. Okay, in Article Two, Section One, Paragraph Two, Line One, the states retained the right to allocate their delegates through their state legislature. Now, they retained the right, and then you had Article. And amendments and that came after that, which did not usurp that authority that the states retained for themselves. So the compact clause does not affect it. Now, here's the danger of Bush versus Gore of 2000 and the Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court ruled in 2000, in 2000 that the states are plenary. Plenary is a legal term for supreme. The states are supreme, ultimate, when it comes to the control of their electoral delegates, when it comes to the Electoral College. And the Supreme Court went on to, and I'm going to say it word for word, the Supreme Court went on to write further in that ruling, which upheld state sovereignty in this issue, that the states have no constitutional requirement to hold an election for the office of president. If so deemed by the states, their electoral delegates can be appointed through the state legislature. Okay? So I'm going to say that again for anybody that's listening. There is no constitutional requirement for the states to hold a popular election for the office of president. That's the danger that we're at when you look at all oh my word. Why can't the why can't the federal government stop it? 
Now, that's, that's one of many, many, many rulings where the Supreme Court has upheld state sovereignty when it came to the electoral delegates and how the states right, hold Bobby, elections. We, I, 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 I just want to interrupt because we do have a question up in the chat room, which brings out an important point. Because, you know, here in the Constitution, you, you quoted, you know, Article 2, Section 1, the first paragraph about the appointment of state uh, legislators based upon the population, which is, I do believe, is 200,000 people per district. But the appointment of a representative or the election of a representative to cover a district of 200,000 people is not the same as an electoral college, uh, electoral college delegate, either appointed or elected to that state electoral college to vote for the president of the United States. It's apples and oranges, two different creatures. It, okay, it is two different numbers today. Okay, for instance, in Pennsylvania, we have 18 U.S. House of Representatives, but we have 20 electoral votes. Okay, so roughly how it was figured out, and I told you, and I said this earlier, the electoral college the representation for the electoral college was frozen through, by legislation during the 1920s, I believe it was. I'd have to go back and look at the date, but I'm pretty sure it was during the 1920s. The, elect, the electoral college delegates and the representation per state was frozen. Now, it used to be adjusted every census. Every time we did a census, it was adjusted. But it's not that way anymore. It's frozen right now. And... The point to that question is is I'm not sure what the point to that question is. Um, you know, so I mean, what, what do you think the point to that question was? How else should I address that question? Well, she's, she's asking is if that's why we have districts, but an electoral college delegate is not actually assigned to a district depending upon how each state creates their delegates. Yes, each state is different. A voting district is different for a state office than it is for a federal office. It's like, for instance, each state is different. We have 50 separate states that hold elections. We have 50 separate rules and regulations when it comes to elections and how we how they elect their representatives, there is no federal law that mandates how a state holds its elections. Whether it would be for a U.S. senator, the office of the president, a U.S. House of Representative, or any state level office, it is entirely up to the states to determine how they hold the elections. It is entirely up to the states to draw their congressional district lines for the federal level and, again, for the local level. Because if you look at districts can't match in Pennsylvania because we have, uh, I forget how many people we have in the, in the state. We have, we have 67 counties. So we have, we have quite a few hundred representatives. So that voting district for the state-level representative is not going to match the voting districts for the 18 federal representatives. We have two 
statewide senators. They're elected by a statewide vote. And we have one Republican or one governor that is elected by statewide. Also, we have a few other ones, judges and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, there is no, there is no, you know, boilerplate rule of thumb to go by when you look across the country. That's one of the biggest, one of the big dangers of a national popular vote is you have 50 different rules for elections. You know, I'll give you, for instance, you know, the biggest, the biggest challenge that President Trump faces in 2020 is not any other candidate. The biggest challenge that President Trump faces is voter fraud. When you have Judicial Watch file a lawsuit in California and find out that California had to purge 1.5 million voters from the voters. Okay, that's enough to blow Hillary's win of the popular vote out of the water. Now, when you look at, like, for instance, inside here in Pennsylvania, we've had districts that have had 110% turnout. That means 110%. That means that more people that live in the district, more voters that were registered for that district voted. So you have 100% voter registration, you know, of your registered voters, you have 110% turnout. So how does that happen? And then you have, in previous elections, you have certain precincts where you have 100%, 100% vote for the Democrat, not one single vote for the Republican. That's a mathematical impossibility. It is a mathematical impossibility. Like when Romney ran, it's impossible for not one Republican, not one Republican vote in several districts, several voting precincts in Pennsylvania. So voter fraud is real. It happens. You know, look at Ballard County in the 2018 midterms. They kept finding box after box after box. You know, I'll give you another, for instance, in California. The rest, the whole entire country has to stop voting on election day, except for California. California has something called ballot harvesting. In California, they can go around. Yeah, they can go around for three additional days, knocking on doors, collecting votes. So you have 49 states that have to stop voting on election day except California can keep voting for three more days. Well, that gives them three mm. days to go out and open doors. So do we have, in a presidential oh, cycle, no, do I, we have time? No, 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 I, I just want to point out, California changed the law under Governor Moonbeam, as you know, Jerry Brown. Uh, he changed the law. In the past, if you had someone that was going to do an absentee voting, a mail-in vote, you had a relative uh, or a caretaker, someone that is a legal caretaker or a, a relative, help them with that vote and make sure it was posted in the mail. Today, under Jerry Brown's law that passed, anyone, anyone can pick up that ballot. Anyone can go up to that person with that absentee ballot and say, oh, are you going to vote? Oh, I wasn't thinking about it. I shoved it in the drawer. But, hey, listen, let me help you fill it out. They basically tell you how to fill it out, who to vote for. And, oh, by the way, let me take that for you, and I will deliver it 
for you. Does this anything speak of vote tampering than this does? Do you see any problems with this, Bobby? Oh, it's it's wrought with problems. It's it's voter fraud on steroids. In the most populated state in the country. And it's it's just unbelievable. So of course, the leftists, the globalists, the Democrats, and some stupid Republicans—that's what they want—is as a pure popular vote, a direct democracy for president. So, you know, you have all of these things. That, you know, if you Laura Ingram last night talked about the attack on on American history. The attack on American history is but one table leg. Of taking down our republic Now why would someone Who lives in the United States of America Who grew up in the greatest Most prosperous country in the history of the world Why would they want to monkey With the foundations, the footers of this country I'll give you one simple example One simple answer It is power It is money, it is influence Power equals money Power equals influence Now in a pure, direct democracy, it is easier for someone to obtain power, and it is far more likely for that person, once they obtain power, to keep that power. So in a direct democracy, you have mob rule. It would be easy to win any election for any office. All you have to do is promise to pay every for person that votes for you. I'm going to give you a $10,000 tax cut. You'll get a check in the mail for $10,000 if I'm elected for president. Every person who votes for me will get $10,000 in the mail. It's going to be a tax cut. Well, that person, hands down, is going to win. Isn't that's that a presidential the, candidate the, you talk about, Yang, that wants to give us $1,000 a month? Well, yeah. <laughs> Don't I mean, we have a presidential look, candidate look, already doing that? Yeah, how many? Yeah, we already have presidential candidates that are talking about doing that. So what I just said is not pie in the sky. We're going to enforce a living wage of fifteen dollars an hour. Go try and buy a McDonald's sandwich with fifteen dollars an hour. You know, the District of Columbia, Washington D.C., they passed a minimum wage act. And guess what the city council is trying to do now in response to their constituents? They're trying to figure out a way to repeal it. Why, you say? Because they're finding out too many businesses are going out of business and that it's hard for the people who are staying in business to afford paying that high wage. The price of food, prepared food in restaurants, has gone through the roof. Basic services. Well, I once sat down and someone was arguing with me about the minimum wage of $15 an hour. And I said, listen, you want a minimum wage of $15 an hour and you calculated how much it goes out. And say, for example, you work a minimum of six hours a a day, uh, five days a week. It comes out to, and I give them the figures like $27,000, $28,000 a year, you know, give or take. And it says, why are they going to pay you $28,000 a year for a part-time job, plus your health benefits, plus unemployment, uh, 
plus FICA and everything else that the employer has to pay in along with your taxes and everything else, why are they going to do that? Because they're going to be up to around $35,000 a year for that one employee. When for $10,000 a year, they buy a kiosk, they have a part-time person coming in, say, at minimum wage of 6 $7 an hour, just to fill it with the chopped meat, the burgers, the ketchup, and someone punches a button, and $10,000 a year replaces that worker. Where does it make sense to you? And no one can come up with an answer. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Here's the windfall that the Democrats are hoping when they talk about a, a minimum wage, a living wage. Now, if you look at taxation, the government takes taxes out of you and it keeps that money for a whole year before you get it back in, a, in an income tax return. Imagine if they essentially doubled the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Guess what happens to their coffers? Now they have a lot of cash coming <laughs> in the door, okay? And the odds are most people in that income bracket, which are, which are, are still children because they're 16, 18, 20 years old, they're still children, okay, they don't even bother to file their income taxes. So that means they get to keep that money. You know, one of the things that one of the and and even if they do refund it back to you, that cash is still coming into the federal government. So yeah. it it, now, it increases well, their okay. property. Well, not, it increases not only that, their you know, they're going to see that they increase their tax bracket. They increase the number, the amount of money they pay in taxes, and then all of a sudden. Why am I going to work for this minimum wage of $15 an hour when I instead can quit my job, go on unemployment, go on food stamps, go on welfare, go on Section 8 housing, and, oh, by the way, get a free Obama phone and free Internet. Listen, Bobby, we had a caller coming in. Let me bring this individual in on the line. He's a friend of the show, a friend of ours also. Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Cool Mike. I didn't mean to leave you hanging on there so long, but there's so much to talk about and so much to do. Your question or comment, Mikey? I, I've been enjoying this guest since you introduced him to the show and his amazing knowledge of our uh, declaration and founding fathers very much. Um, wow, you're amazing. Uh, my, just two quick comments. Kamala Harris, it would be great to be a black teacher nowadays. Kamala Harris is promising them like 15000 more a year, plus reparations for being African American, plus on top of that, uh, uh, she wants to uh, help everyone buy a house at, like, half the price or something like that. So why would you uh, why would you not, if you were an African-American female, uh, vote for Santa Claus? Because she's certainly promising an awful lot of gifts uh, on Christmas Day. Also, um, for a question, um, well, I'll wait for a comment for that and then throw a question to our guest. Do you think... It is uh, by accident. Um, even a lot of Republicans now, uh, in their public statements, are referring to us as a democracy. Um, or do you think they've just become part of part of the oligarchy? You know, I, because I've never believed it's a D and an R. I think they all work for the same uh, same whatever group that controls the country. That's my uh, go ahead. 
Yeah, okay, thank you for thank you for the kind words. Um, I'd love to spend uh, three or four hours just talking about the foundings, foundations of our of our republic. Um, you know that I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And as far as to your question, it is a definite plan. It has been a definite plan. Karl Marx made the statement many many times that we must replace the word leftist with the word progressive. We must replace the word republic with the word democracy. Words mean things. Words mean things. And if they change it subtly, a little bit at a time, the death of a thousand paper cuts, they will not notice that they are losing their republic. Now, this, this, this is what I'm saying. Today. It is happening today. Look at, look at the plan, the global plan. We must get religion from our schools. We, we, we do not require our children to say the Pledge of Allegiance. We must remove our historical statues because they offend three people in the world. We must stop talking about the history of the slavers. They were slavers, yet they wrote the words that all men, meaning mankind, all men are created equally and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, not inalienable, unalienable rights, which means we cannot be alienated from them by any government whether it be formed by we the people or we the federal bureaucracy. You see, the Constitution of the United States belongs to the people of this country. The Constitution of the United States does not belong to the federal government. We have a duty, and I'll give you an example. In recent history, everybody bangs, and we all are mad. We all are extremely mad at Chief Justice Roberts for upholding Obamacare as a constitutional tax. Now, it's a constitutional tax because of the 16th Amendment. But he upheld it because he accepted the argument from the Obama administration that it was a simple tax. When Justice Roberts wrote for the majority, when he wrote his opinion, I'm going to quote him directly. We at the Supreme Court have no moral authority nor legal responsibility to protect the American voter from themselves. If the people of America feel that they are not duly or righteous, rightfully represented, they have a duty to, quote, Throw them out of office and replace them with elected officials that represent their beliefs. Unquote. Now, that is what Chief Justice Roberts told us in his public writing in the opinion. He did not say recall them, he did not say unelect them. He said, quote, throw them out of office. And he also said, we have a duty and a right to do so. 
Now, that's what Chief Justice Roberts told the American people about his decision to uphold the federal government when it came to taxation when it comes to Obamacare. And guess what? The media didn't report it. The American people, by and large, did not bother to read what he wrote. You see, the greatness of this country can be restored if we learn, relearn the things, the writings, the beliefs of the people who formed this country. So was was the Supreme Court justice stealing the line from the Declaration for all such guards and uh, replacement new guards? I don't think he was stealing the line. You have to go back. And I, I, I quoted him. I said it as a quote, but you have to go back and reread it because I may have I, I may have missed missed a word or two there. But I'm fairly I'm about ninety percent positive on every single word I just said. <clears throat> it's not the same as what's in the Constitution. We have a responsibility to throw them out of office and replace them. The Declaration of Independence cites it a little bit differently. The Declaration of Independence is more of a rallying cry. It's a rallying document which states the the grievances and what we can do about it and states our rights as as living beings. The Constitution is the legal document that it's called compact. That's what a Constitution is. The reason it's called a Constitution is because the states constituted – a federal government, and the agreement was the first compact, the first contract that the 13 sovereign states entered into, formally, legally, as a, as a union. So that's how we got the name Constitution, because we constituted a federal government. So, you know, there's, these are well, the Bobby, things that... Go ahead. Well, let's let's go back to let's go back to the national popular vote issue here because uh, we're going a little bit off off a little bit offline here <clears throat> because the, what we're looking at now, as you said, we have 196 electoral votes now dedicated to the national popular vote. But thanks to <coughs> your awakening, or as the left likes to say, you woke, um, and now Charlie Kirk starting to get into this fight. There are three states looking to reverse the compacts they passed. Uh, Colorado, Illinois, and I do believe just recently your own state of Pennsylvania. No, it's it's uh it's it's um no it's Connecticut. Yeah, Pennsylvania has not joined the compact. They have a piece of legislation that's been reintroduced. And that was that's just been introduced here in the in the past ten days or so. That's to join the National Popular Vote Compact. But there, there are three states, and you listed them correctly. Uh, Illinois is one, Colorado is another one, uh, and uh, also that referendum to put it to a popular to put it to a popular vote. You know, it's kind of ironic because Colorado lawmakers they they voted to join the compact of the national popular vote to give up the state sovereignty in their elections. But yet they fight against the people wanting to put the question to a popular vote. So it's very ironic. 
it's very ironic. But anyhow, that referendum was approved this past week in Colorado by the Colorado State Department. So, you know, it is going to be on the ballot. They're collecting signatures. They're going to have plenty of signatures to get it on the ballot. So the people are going to have a chance to vote on it in Colorado. Um, In Connecticut, there there are, I think, three pieces of legislation of repeal in Connecticut. And also Illinois, uh, they have also started legislation to to repeal it, to remove themselves from from the compact. So the people are waking up when, when, when people find out how bad this legislation is, when they find out that and they do research yeah, when they find out, when they find it out, they, they take action. They take action, they take action, they take action. And you know when we talk about the undermining, you know the attack on our history, the attack on our public schools, the attack on the word democracy versus republic, it's all part of a big plan. To democratize the United States of America, the greatest republic, the greatest country in the history of the world. And, you know, it is a plan. It's well-funded. You know, George Soros and Jonathan Soros, his son, they spend big money on this. John Koza spends big money on this. Barack Obama spends big money on this. You know, Barack Obama raised a lot of money on his way out the door. What's he doing with it? Good question, huh? Redistricting. Yeah, it is. Redistricting. Yes. I'm going to tell you what he's he's spending it on. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Him him and the colder. Go ahead, (laughs) I was going to say, anyone anyone listening in Pennsylvania, the legislation to oppose, to write to your senators and to your government in there, is SB 270 in Pennsylvania. I don't have the legislation for Colorado, uh, but in Illinois, it's HB 3853. Uh, And, and, you know, there is a huge push from the left because there was an opinion piece uh, recently. Where the heck was this? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I've been printing this stuff out like crazy last night trying to get oh, USA Today, written by Stuart Stevens, uh, explaining why he actually happens to be an ex-Romney strategist. He goes to show you how much of a rhino Romney actually is that wants to help kill the Electoral College. Uh, saying, yes, Republicans, and yes, there are some Republicans, but rhinos in name only. Uh, but we're, we're seeing, as you talked about uh, the uh, – the ballot harvesting, uh, but you also sent me information on um, HR one for the People Act. So we're not only having the attack on the Electoral College, we're not only having that attack on our ability to control the vote here, but you have now Nancy Pelosi and her cronies trying to control the entire voting system, removing it from the states completely and putting it entirely in the hands of the federal government. This is some crazy, crazy crazy-ass, oh, excuse my language. You know what I'm going to say next. It is nuts. Yes, it is. America right now, if I'm speaking to every person listening, ladies and gentlemen, the Republic of the United States of America, the history of our country, what you believe in your heart, what you know in your mind, is under direct assault from the left. It is under direct assault from Democrats. It is under direct assault 
from stupid Republicans who have been bought and paid for by money from outside this country. We are at war, ladies and gentlemen. We have incoming fire. We have bullets whizzing through the grass. And I'm asking everyone to hunker down, find out about these things that we're talking about, and start being vocal. Now, I'm going to say this from my heart, and I want everyone to listen real close to what I'm going to say. The patriots that fought for this country, that fought for your personal freedom, the patriot, men and women who fought, who gave the last full measure of devotion to give birth to your personal freedom and your individual liberty, they had to give up life and limb and fortune to give us this nation for free. When they were standing up against the British Army in open fields, 50 caliber musket balls, that's a half inch around in diameter, 53 caliber musket balls, cannonballs, 12 pounders, ripping limbs from their bodies, piercing their, piercing their abdomens. They would lay for days until they died. Maggots were used to cleanse the wounds. There was no painkillers back then other than alcohol and cocaine. There was no antibiotics. They kissed their wives goodbye. They hugged their children. They grabbed their hunting rifle from the mantle, and they left their farms, not knowing when or if they would return. In order for us, you and me, to preserve the freedom and liberty that we, that we enjoy for the future, we only have to educate ourselves about the attacks. Tell people about them and vote. We have an easy task when it comes to saving this nation. If we have to engage in another civil war to preserve it, it will be more costly, more deadly, more painful than anything the country has ever been through before. Evil wins when good people do, do nothing. We have to teach our children the beauty and the history of this country, both the good and the bad. We have to love our country. We have to love our children enough to teach them the history of it. Because if we don't, no one else will. This is a pivotal time. Donald Trump gave us a pause button to realize what was happening to our nation. We, the people, must once again ensure that personal freedom and individual liberty and self-governance does not perish from the face of this earth. That is the danger we're at right now. It cannot be overstated. That I is- believe this... No, it can't be. I believe. Go ahead. Oh, it can't Go be. Ahead. 
because you, you, you listen to people saying, when was America great? America was never great. And my listeners know the rant I'm going to be going on because America has always been great. We have taken strides through every generation. We've started off from a germ of an idea, and that's when Americans were great. We took an idea of freedom and liberty and took it the next step to break away from a tyranny. And we were great when we wrote those founding documents, the Declaration of Independence. We were great when men and women left their homes to fight for independence. Yes, there were a handful of the major population, but that handful of great founding fathers and Americans gave up everything. And in in some cases, they've lost their entire families and fortunes and died in abject poverty. But they had an idea of freedom and liberty. That is what made America great. And they had the idea that knowing that slavery was a bad idea, a bad moral issue, and set the foundation that brought us to the Civil War and the abolitionists, the Republicans that fought for freedom for every single man and woman across this nation. That's when America was great. America was great when she came to the aid of her sister nations and said, you are under tyranny. We have given the yoke of tyranny and threw it to the garbage, and we will help you fight for your freedoms and liberty. We will take the tyranny away from you and fight by your side through world war after world war. We've done that in Vietnam and Korea and now in the war on terror. America has always been great, and instead of looking at what we still have to change, we look at and, and it. We haven't looked at what brought us to this point in history, what made us the greatest nation in the world, an exceptional people. And yet we allow people to shame us when we say those words, exceptional. Yes, we are the greatest nation. And maybe one day there will be another nation that will replace us as even a better, more freedom-oriented nation. That's in the history. But maybe we will morph into that nation and replace all others and show the world the truth about freedom and liberty. We remain a great nation. And when we are ashamed of that, we dishonor our heritage. We dishonor every man and woman that died for this. That's my rant, Bobby. Well, you know, (laughs) once again, I blame a lot of this ignorance um, coming from the left, um, those who vote Democrat, uh, I blame it on the educational system, the very system that is indoctrinating these folks. Every time I go to Philadelphia, I find myself put in a position where I have to explain the Electoral College because um, some people up there believe their vote don't count and that the system's not fair. So what I tell, tell them is, look, Republicans won a few, you know, races. Um, seems like the Democrats have won a few. You had, you had Jimmy Carter. You had um, um, Bubba. You had Obama for eight years. So I said, how's the system unfair? You know, I could see if the Republicans were winning every year or every four years, but that's not the case. I, I said, um, your complaint about your vote don't count. Um, were you saying that when your your people were 
you know, were winning, like Obama and and Clinton, and most of the time they can't re- they can't respond to that. Exactly. When you use logic, there is no response. It, the the left and the the Democrats and the leftists, they do not think logically. They they think they think with feeling. They don't they 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 go with a feeling. I just feel this way. I don't know why. I never thought about why I feel this way. So if you, if, you know, how I do it is I get them to drill down. What is it that makes you think that way? And well, my teacher, well, my my professor, well, I read this. And, okay, that's okay. That's an outside influence. Why is it that you, inside your head, think that way? Can you rationalize it? And a lot of times they can't because they've never they've never used a logic decision process to discover anything in their life. So they were always spoon fed. Yeah, CS CS your point can, cannot be understated. CS your point is is the number one thing we have to do to save this country is we need to get politics and political correctness out of the classroom. That's the biggest thing that we can do is getting it out of the classroom. Now, until we can do that, until there's enough political will to do that, we have people that will do that. We do not have enough people that will vote consistently in every election to support that, getting the bureaucracy, the politicians, the politics out of our public education system. You know, so um, what do we do in the meantime is we have to teach as many people that will listen the truth. You know, and right. and that that means we're going to take some incoming heat. You know, uh, CS, you talked about, and I'm sure, and you, I'm sure you felt it too. You know, you get some hot words thrown back at you sometimes. We get people that are heated, and I I say it like this. You know, the heat that we receive when we talk about liberty and freedom, it only serves to temper the sword of righteousness or the sword of truth as we slice through the fog of ignorance. Now, ignorance is not a bad thing. Ignorance can be solved through gaining knowledge and understanding. Stupid, you can't help. Stupid is a choice. <laughs> you can't fix stupid. You can't fix stupid. Yeah. Exactly. But, but ignorance can be solved through, through, you know, and that's the thing is we've got to discover who the stupid ones are who choose to be that way and, and just leave them wherever they're at in life. And we need to find the ignorant. Ignorance is not a bad word. I was ignorant of the Constitution. I was ignorant of the founding documents. You know, and and when, I, when, we, when I talk about the founding documents, I'm not talking about just the Declaration of Independence and, and the U.S. Constitution. I went, I went five years prior to the Declaration of Independence to find out why George Washington believed what he believed, to find out why the Adams family, you know, the Adams, John Adams, why did he believe what he believed? Why did John Hancock believe what he believed? Why did Madison believe what he believed? Who did they read? What was their communications like? You know, one simple fact, you know, someone who always, you know, these politicians, 
they always ask me for an endorsement. And they say, I love the ones that say that they're a constitutional conservative or they're a constitutional Democrat or they're a constitutional Republican. I say, that's interesting. You know the Constitution pretty well. Yes, sir. I know it front to back. I said, great. Let me ask you a simple question. What's the document that made the 13 colonies free from Great Britain? In essence, it created the first 13 sovereigns. And I've had no one out of hundreds of politicians, elected and, and candidates, be able to answer that. The document that created the first 13 sovereigns, known as states, it happened two days prior to the Declaration of Independence. It was called the Lee Resolution, and it happened on July the 2nd. And that document, believe it or not, you can look it up online, is about the size of a, of a, of a, of a napkin, a table napkin. When I fold it, fold it, it will fit in the palm of your hand. And that document has about three sentences on it. The Lee Resolution. It looks like it was literally written on a, on a napkin. And that document made 13 colonies into 13 sovereigns. Now, when you discover these things, you have to look, read them with, with, and understand colonial English. Like, when we, when we look at the founding of this country, states we think of today are part of a union. Well, back then, states were a sovereign nation. The great state of Britain, the great state of France. Okay? So we had 13 separate sovereigns. And when they talk about these several states, several doesn't mean like we think of today, one, two, three, four, five. Several back then meant severed. They were separate. So that's just an example, a few examples of the different meanings that words have changed over time. So when you go back and you read these, these documents, you have to walk in their shoes and listen to spoken word the way they did. And the only way you can do that is to go back and read the correspondence that they wrote to one another, why they believed things, why they felt the way they felt. And, and then you read the Declaration of Independence, and then you read the Articles of Confederation, and then you read the Declaration of Independence. You also have to go back and read the Federalist Papers. Then you have to go back and read the correspondence that they wrote to their wives that they wrote to each other when they were in session. For 10 years, we did not have a federal government. The states came together and they fought to win their sovereignty from the great state of Britain without a federal government. For 10 years, there was none. So, you know, so well, Bobby, Bobby I, want to, I want to point out even further, because you're talking about the Confederation of States, which 
ended up you know failing which brought us to the constitution but not just speak uh, reading the declaration of independence or the lee resolution we had to go back even further than that go back to the magna carta and then go beyond the magna carta and go back to where king harold codified english common law because under english common law they spoke of inside the English common law, the right of man to defend himself, the right of man to life and property. So this is deep in English uh, tradition, which our founding fathers turned around and said, well, listen, this is what our, our kingdom was originally founded upon. The tyranny has gone too far. Let's go back to the basics, what John Locke has written about. Read him to understand where they got their ideas and how it was in law. Because when John Adams fought the English tyranny, he was citing English common law. That's very true. That's very true. You know, the, the, and, you know to continue on with your readings, to understand, the, I'm talking about this, understanding the formation of, of our country, you know, the... The, the documents, what's called the what, the resolution papers or the ratification documents. The ratification documents are where the 13 separate states ratified the Constitution. And as the, as the Constitution made its way through those 13 states, there was discussions, there was letters being written, there was correspondence, there was news articles, there was or articles from the press, there was many, many different sources that you can go back and read to understand the very principles that was that were given to us. And, and we have strayed so far from that. I mean, it's not even funny. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. But um, <clears throat> to get back to, to, the, to the, uh, the national popular vote, that's just one thing, you know, taking over the schools, doing away with our history, Changing the word to mean democracy, redefining America from a republic to a democracy. Let's stop saying the pledge. Why? Because it has God in it. No, that's not why. The reason that we don't say that anymore is because it has the word republic in it. God was a distraction. Let's start well, talking Bobby, about. I, I just want to break off for democracy. a moment. Well, Bobby, I just want to pick off for just a minute because I see people piling up inside the studio uh, telephone list. Um, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, please press one. Otherwise, I will assume that you're there to listen in because I see numbers there I don't recognize. I see our normal people there, and I see new people uh, popping in. So welcome, Ford. Welcome, everyone that's in our chat room here on Blog Talk Radio as well as up on Facebook and YouTube. And I'm glad I said that, Bobby, because we do have a question or comment for you if I make sure I grab the right mouse. Uh, let's bring this individual in on the air If we can get the There we go Area code 405 You're on the air live With Southern Sense I'm your hostess Annie the Radio Chick Our guest is Bobby Lawrence Of ProtectYourVoteUSA.org To whom am I speaking? This is Jake Fogg With Internet Deputy Jake How are you doing sweetie? Nice to have you I saw you pop up in the chat room Welcome aboard. Yeah, and you're also with. Uh, let me make sure I get this right. You're with Hub, correct? Yes, I certainly am. Yes. I, I, okay. I only wanted Go to ahead, add Jake. two things. We we had two rants that were awesome. You guys uh, can't 
can't encapsulate the feeling that we need to all be having uh, more than, than what you did. The only thing I'd like to add is, number one, whenever uh, whenever we hear, when, you know, we talk about the Declaration of Independence all the time, and we always say unalienable rights. That, that, that's how everybody pronounces it, but I think it's a lot easier when you pronounce it the way it was originally intended, which is unalienable. And the reason why that is important is because then it gives you the chance to add a conversation. What does that mean? Well, the root word is lean, as in what a bank can place on a vehicle if you take a loan from it. In other words, they have a certain ownership, right? That's, so what that's those exactly three un- that, that's exactly, exactly right. And the problem is, is once people, once people get more of when you're when you're trying to have these conversations with the the more ignorant, you can say, look, you know, our founders intended us for for us not to be able to have the government place a lien on those rights. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add was that um, when we're when we're talking to some of these people, we we definitely need to know the Constitution and the Declaration. But a lot of these people, the only way, and I, I talk to a lot of uh, African Americans. I talk to a lot of Hispanics. I'm bilingual. My girlfriend is from Mexico legally. Um, I've, I've been bilingual for 20 years. And when I'm talking to a lot of these people, a lot of them are real easy to reach. But it, it, you've got to put it in, into terms that they understand. And when you start showing them things like, you know, uh, how at one time during the Depression, blacks had a lower unemployment than whites until the union stepped in and, and created what, you know, was one of the first uh, forms of minimum wage. Um, and, and how they were, you know, heavily represented in the construction industry, for example. Or if you, if you give them the actual numbers that, you know, the, the whole black on white cop thing uh, is actually uh, a fallacy. You know that, that that blacks get shot more proportionately than whites, and that's actually not true. So when when and and also showing them how economics is where their freedom actually lies. A lot of these people are so used to being spoon fed. I think we need to uh, kind of hit it in, in terms that a lot of them understand, you know, and uh, and then go from there. And I think that we could not we cannot do a better job. Or we, we, we can't never do too much preaching to our kids. And the reason I say that is because we have all these all these parents sending their you know their girls off to college from nice Christian homes who end up their their daughters end up coming back calling their fathers uh, you know evil patriarchy and that kind of stuff. And I think that I think and and I've read story after story after story about a lot of people who have their red pill later on in life, how what one of their things is they, they acknowledge their parents were probably conservative, but they never talked to them much about it. And I think it's a big mistake. I think that when you prepare the kids, they're, 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 when you let them know what they're going to have in their education in the future, what kind of people are going to be saying things and, and what they're going to be saying, I think that they're, they're actually prepared. And they say, hey, my dad actually knew what, you know, he was talking about. But 
when they go there and they didn't hear it, you already have your teachers telling them, well, your parents are probably older. They don't really understand these things. I think that um, it's really important that the parents prepare them ahead. At least then they have some idea what they're going to be up against, and they're not going to think they're getting some kind of new information that all of a sudden their parents aren't smart enough to disseminate, you know? Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. Well, you you made very very good points. Very very good points. Yep. I mean, I think that. Well, you know, I I want to mention. uh, Go ahead. Well, I was going to mention, Jake, that, that you've got Internet Deputy. People should check you out on Internet Deputy, but you also got the social website Hub Life that they can check out. But both of you mentioned education, and this is something I pulled out, and I thought it's extremely important to know because, you know, the Democrats on the, tra- on the trail right now are all talking about paying – the government will pay off or forgive your, your college uh, debt. Now, this is very interesting. Um, 62% of Democratic primary voters have a college degree. 29 have a postgraduate degree. Uh, Master of Arts students make up 17%. Now, catch 17% of student loan borrowers, but oh, 38% of the student loan debt. So when you start thinking about this, why these Democrats are pushing for the student loan forgiveness and, and pushing for more influence in liberals into our, our upper education system, the one-third of the Democrats that are college graduates that have these student loans are the ones that vote in Democratic primaries compared to those that do not have a degree only make up 9%. Look at the way they're using our education system against it. So if they brainwash these kids and convince us that we are a democracy and not a republic, that the Constitution is a living document, not the cement foundation upon which we stand, then you wonder why these kids are so gullible and fall fall for this. Free money, free education, free phones, free housing, free this, free that. Government will take care of you from cradle to grave. And there goes the American dream. I want you to uh, address that, Bobby. Oh, you're you're exactly right. I mean, the the it, it's it's all. I mean, it's it's uh, no tinfoil hats here. Okay, it's all part of a plan. It's it's all part of a of a plan. Now, whether it's coordinated from some some bunker somewhere, you know, I, I can't see happening. But it, the attack on on our country, the attack on on everything that is America, is is real. And it, and it can't be understated what you just said. Well, the article, you know, I'm quote, if anyone wants to look it up, it's from, yeah, from I'm trying Daniel Greenfield. Daniel Greenfield. He's known as the Sultan Nish. Uh, so check him out, Daniel Greenfield. That's the article I've quoted. Um, I don't have the link for it. But uh, I, just, just just Google Daniel Greenfield, Sultan Nish. Um but it, it, it is an assault upon us, and they're going through it through our kids. You know, the adults are too stupid. Um, Jake, isn't that what Al Gore was all about? Kids, it's global warming. It's inconvenient truth. Go home to your parents. Teach them. They're just too dumb to understand what is going on in the world. That's what, they, what Al Gore started, didn't he? 
becoming very much aware of how they're attacking us, how they're going after us, and, and you know, we need to start talking about it. It's not, I mean, this is something that's well, not in our heads, you know? No, not at all. Well, Bobby, uh, I don't know if you want to hang out, because we've got our next guest in on the line, and Jake, if you want to hang out, please do. I want to bring in our next guest. Uh, he's the I, author, I, I, I can going, get the I've right mouse again. I'm well, gonna, Jake, I'm I, I want to thank now. you for joining us. I'm telling people, well, I'm telling people to check out your internet website as well as your Hub Life social network that you put out there. Thanks a lot, Jake. Well, you know well, you're always Life, welcome on the, the show. Life, we have a, well, thank you. And the Hub Life, we have a new video out right now, which kind of uh, so check it out. I did share it on Hub. You might want to look at it later and share it around. Thanks a lot, Jake. God bless. All right, check check out Jake Foz on Hub Life as uh, Internet Deputy. Let's bring on our next victim into the bullpen. He's the author of Liberation Day, uh, National Empowerment of the Constitution, Eric Martin. Good afternoon, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Ian. All right. Um, I'm holding on to my buddy, Bobby Lawrence, uh, who is the webmaster of ProtectYourVoteUSA.org, uh, because we're talking about the attack on the Electoral College. And some of the things that you write with is about the constitutionality of certain aspects of our government. And since Bob is a constitutional I wouldn't say scholar, but extremely knowledge in our history and of the Constitution, I want Bobby just to hang on with us and join us in the conversation, if you don't mind. Wonderful. All right. Um, your book – oh, by the way, Bobby, I should mention that there's a link up on the show page to your ProtectYourVoteUSA.site as well as the Facebook page that people can join Protect Your Vote up on Facebook. And, um, Eric, your book is up on Amazon. People can click on the link in, on the show page to learn about it. Now, you came up with an interesting idea that with the stroke of the pen – on one day, the President of the United States can execute 23 executive orders and bring us back to the constitutional government that our founders thought we had at the time they signed the Constitution. Am I getting the premise correct, or yes or no? 100% correct. I think you said it better than I could say it. Um, and it's it's you know it's not perfect, but I'd say it's you know, 99% better than what we have now. It gets us 95% of the way there, which is, you know, much better than what we have now. Now, what what I liked about your book, you know, and I, I always read my author's books. I should say there's two occasions in the eight and a half years I've done the show that I haven't. So I, that's a pretty good record. Um, and I, I was enjoying the idea that you, you broke down and you showed uh, through various agencies, uh, through the various branches of government, um, how it violates the Constitution and why certain things are unconstitutional, why Congress and Senate and the executive branch have overextended their powers, as well as going into various agencies that answer to no one have overextended their constitutional limits. And you explain why and how. Um, Give me a couple of these examples. So our listeners can understand what you're looking at and why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, I mean, it it really goes back to the, the original intent, the original interpretation of the constitution. And, you know, most people from your grade school teachers on up 
get it wrong. And the Constitution, by and large, all the Constitution is, is a very short list of the things that the federal government can do, that they're allowed to do. And if it's not listed in the Constitution as something that the federal government can do, they're not allowed to do it. So the Department of Education is, uh, you know, one of my favorites that's totally unconstitutional um, simply because the word education is never even listed or alluded to in the Constitution. Another no, one would and Bobby, be... And feel free to jump in. Yeah, 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 yeah jump ahead, in. Uh, Eric. Yeah, I was, I, I'll, yeah, I'll just list through a few of them um, because, you know, like uh, you did mention that the the uh, the legislative branch has overstepped their bounds and really the executive, but even the judicial has really overstepped. Uh, Roe v. Wade is a great example. There's an executive order in the book to essentially reverse Roe v. Wade. And people think that if we do that, abortion will be illegal, and that's not true. All it does is put abortion into the hands of the states. So states can legalize it or illegalize it just like, you know, just like the Constitution intended. Uh, the Federal Reserve is totally unconstitutional. It gets um, audited and ended with the stroke of a pen. You've got the CIA. Um, all, all wars that are undeclared will be ended. The Department of Homeland Security is gone. Health and Human Services is gone. Uh, the Department of Energy and Labor. Now, I should say there are very small pieces of some of, some of these uh, that do move into other uh, agencies because maybe they dealt with uh, uh, the Army or something like that. But for the most part, these, these totally get uh, essentially taken away. Yeah, that, that's right, well, very true. Um, we need to return. I, I, go ahead, Bobby. Yeah, that, it's very true. We we need to return to, you know, a, a constitution. I think we're living in a post-constitutional America right now. And one of the things that's becoming very clear to a lot of folks, and Donald Trump has really helped. I mean, I don't know if you support him or not. One of the things that he's done is he has peeled back the onion to show what the deep state, what the federal government has been doing to us and, and who – is is behind it all. I mean, he's exposing him one by one by one by one. And, you know, the, with social media and, and a lot of the patriots that are on social media, the truth of what we have lost is coming to light. You know, folks like yourself and Ann and C.S. Bennett and, and, and you know, there's, you know we, we are making a difference because there is an awakening that, that is happening across this country. It's slow, but I do believe that we are turning the tide and the direction. I do believe that, and we just have to keep pushing forward. You know, I say this to folks. Yeah. You know, when I give a speech, when I give a speech is, what can we do about it? Is a question I get a lot. What can we do about it? Here's what you can do: learn everything you can about the attack that's happening on our country. All of them. Tell three people and get three people you know, who've never voted before, to vote. Share the information with three people. If, if, so if one person does three people, does three people, does three people, by the time you get to 20 people, you've, you've encompassed the whole country. You yeah. know, it's, it's like, 
You know, it, that, that's where it's at. So if, if you know three people that don't vote, sit, invite them over to your house for dinner one night and say, we're going to have a serious conversation. You know, I, I, I need your help with some things. I need you to understand a few things. Or I want to help, with, you know, our countries. Talk about it, however you choose. It's okay to talk about politics. And, and if people don't like talking about politics, well, then how about let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about your freedom. Let's talk about how you feel about why you can't talk about politics. Let's, we won't talk about politics. We're going to talk about why you feel how you feel about politics. And that's the opening because we've got to start, we've got to start getting more people involved with understanding the history, you know, and getting them doing something about it. You know, one of the stories that, that Chris Ann Hall talks about is, you know, we're all on vacation somewhere, and we left our car at home. We're in a different state. We left our car back at home in the driveway. Somebody stole it 10 minutes after we left. We're on vacation for two weeks. We're not mad about our car being stolen because we don't know it's been stolen. Only when we get home and we find out that it's been stolen are we upset about it. So that's where we're at when it comes to our liberty and our, and our freedom. We don't realize how much have been, has been stolen from us because we weren't educated about it. The more we get educated about it, the more we will be righteously upset about it because we have now learned what has been stolen from us. And it is personal economic freedom. You know, I hate money, but money buys us freedom. Money buys us things. It buys us, it buys us freedom. It buys us time. It buys us a sense of security. It binds us, it buys us calmness in our life. That's an economic freedom, greater economic freedom will lead to a better, more passionate, you know, less divided country. So, you know, when you talk about the, the economic freedoms of people, and that is, that is paramount to it. You know, Donald Trump talks about make America great again, and it's not things. It's not roads and bridges. Make America great again means to make the American people great again, to make yeah. us okay, to make us feel safe, to make us feel prosperous, to make us feel good, to make us live better. That is the, what make America great again. Those simple words, that's what it means to Donald Trump. I know he believes that in his heart. And, and we do that you know, through rediscovering the foundations. Well, you know, um, Eric, Eric has an interesting book. And I, I do, Eric, um, want to challenge you a little bit on the book because you, you write out 23 executive orders and your premise is, is that in one fell stroke in one day, we can return our country to a constitutional government. Uh, but knowing how the public works, how our politicians work, and the backlash that would occur should someone like Donald Trump were to do this in one day, do you see a problem here? Uh, I see uh, a huge firestorm of problems. I mean, just look at Donald Trump trying to do minor executive orders. So it's uh, 
the way I see it is we're going to have to have the smartest president we've ever had who can not only sign these executive orders, but then get the, you know, the, the district courts and all the courts that are going to challenge them. And every time it gets challenged, just put out a new executive order with a tiny tweak that, that takes care of the issue that they have. And just, it's going to be, it's going to be a matter of a firestorm of just executive order after executive order to fight essentially the backlash. Oh, I'm sorry, Bobby. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, one of the things you talked about there was, was the court system. And this is something that Mitch McConnell, I happened to be in the room when Mitch McConnell talked about this for the first time that I heard. And I had always beaten him up pretty good, you know, Mitch McConnell. I had beaten him up pretty good when I gave my speeches. Well, I stopped doing that after I, after I heard him say this. At the time, it was around 25 uh, lifetime appointments to the federal court system. And he had said that they were on track to seat more federal judges as a percentage than any other president besides one in the history of the country. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, this is huge. And then Mitch McConnell went on to say, this is how Donald Trump is affecting our country for the next 50 years. These are lifetime appointments, folks. Now, that was then. The last count was around 105 lifetime appointments to the federal court system, and they were all Donald Trump. And this with Mitch McConnell. Now, this is how we change and restore this country. I'll give you, for instance, the Ninth Circus. I call it the circus because it's the Ninth thir- Circuit. And, uh, the <laughs> I caught that. Circus, I caught that. <laughs> yeah, the Ninth Circus is now, due to Donald Trump, evenly split, 7-7. And that was the one that was giving him the most problem. So guess what? Donald Trump is winning behind the scenes, drawing fire, taking the arrows, taking the slings, while he fundamentally restores this nation's rule of law. Yeah. And that is gigantic. Well, Eric, it I want to bring... Go ahead. Well, Bobby, you've got, a, you've got a perfect point here, which is where I'm bringing this back to Eric, you know, the author of the book uh, Liberation Day. Um that he is doing basically what you're saying he should be doing, slowly dismantling the swamp, going after first regulations, then going after certain departments, getting them to pare down, and maybe trying to merge them into other areas in which then he can close them down. He's doing it subtly and in the background. Um, When I was reading your book, and you attacked things such as Medicare and Social Security and dropping them back to the state, if you were to do that overnight, the states can't handle it. They're not set up. So when you did your 23 executive orders, did you do this deliberately to provoke such a thought and reaction? Or did you think that maybe if we can then start to transfer these powers back to the state over time, it might work better? You know, what was your idea on saying, let's do it 24 hours? 
my my idea in the 24 hours, and really you signed it on the spot if you become president. If you're not president, I guess you take longer maybe. But the concept is that someone should run on this platform. I think someone should run on this platform. And so the states will have, you know, probably at least a year knowing, oh, this guy could win. And then it's, it's, it's what, from when you're elected, three or four months. So that, you know, that'll give them time to put stuff in place, um, sort of stopgap emergency me- measures to help Social Security and Medicare. When you look at, you know, uh, these programs, the thing is the states largely, uh, you know, they, they largely have a, a say in Medicaid already. So to just convert that into Medicare, the stuff is in place. It, it would not be as hard as we think to just send a check out to every single person and raise taxes a little bit. Um, and quite frankly, some states probably won't. And people will say, well, shoot, I better move to another state where they're actually giving out nice Social Security checks. <laughs> and not only that, not only that, but these social, I was going to say not only that, but these Social Security checks, uh, I think there's a provision in there to essentially give people what they're owed. You know, we're not going to just rip them off. We give them what they're owed, and we close it that day. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's no, there's no federal, there's no, uh, it's not in the Constitution for the federal government to take care of our retirement. Yep. No. Yeah, so no, and I've said long ago, if if I were to able to take that money I paid into Social Security and Medicare all those years and invest it on my own, at this point I'd be a millionaire sitting back not worrying about going from check to check. But instead government yeah. said this is a way to make you permanently dependent on government. We're gonna feed them the line. We're going to give you Social Security just so because you know, we don't trust you to be responsible enough to save for your retirement. So we're going to take care of you, and we'll hold your money. We're going to give it back to you without interest, without dividends, and we're also going to regulate how much of your money we're going to give you back. And we fell for it. That's horrible. Yeah, I, I, I mean – one of my inspirations for this was Ron Paul's plan to restore America. Uh, that came out, it, I think, uh, late 2011, you know, when he was running for 2012. But the thing is, his plan to restore America, uh, you know, might cut departments by 30% or 50% or whatever it did. But Ron Paul's a Constitution guy, and this is, you know, the Constitution says these departments can't even exist. So. I'm I'm cutting a bunch of budgets to zero. Um, I, essentially, it's what probably what Ron Paul wanted to launch, but he, you know, his people or whatever said, you know, you can't do this. It's too radical. It's really, I think, what Ron Paul would have wanted to do if he had a chance. Now, it's not perfect. I don't know that I agree with Ron Paul on 100%, but you know, I would like to. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's go ahead. Um, one of the things you had said about Social Security. If you go back and, and, and read the transcripts from, from when they were having the debate when they passed Social Security, one of the things that they talked about was the fact that, by and large, the majority of the population who paid into the system would not live long enough to recoup any of the benefits of the system. And there was actually some mathematical calculations done 
for the for the funding model that counted on a certain number of people dying. Yeah. Before they reach retirement age. Well, guess what they've done? There's extended life expectancy. The average uh the average age is way up and they've also uh you know, increase the retirement age of when you can receive your Social Security. So it's a constant battle between you know, the math versus versus what they can take from us that we'll stand for, that we'll sit down for. You know, so it's a constant battle. It's a, it's a the greatest Ponzi scheme that was ever perpetrated on the American people. It needs to stop. That doesn't mean disenfranchising. That doesn't mean disenfranchising people. Now listen, there's a lot of listeners out there. It does not mean disenfranchising people who have paid into the system, because Social Security is not an entitlement. Social Security is a paid-for benefit by the American taxpayers and the employers who paid into that system. The money needs to go back to the people who paid into the system, not the illegal aliens who get it, not the people who've never worked a day in their life. It needs to go back to the people who paid into the system. It's our money. We want it back. And the same goes for Medicare. It's not the same as Medicaid, which is government-free health care. In that effect, uh, I believe Pelosi put another bill before the House, uh, Medicaid for All. Uh, we've got, you were talking about earlier, Bobby, uh, H.R. 1, where they're trying to take over the state's responsibility for state elections. And, uh, Eric, that must drive you crazy when you see bills being put forward by the Democratic Congress where they're going to take over Medicaid for all, and government, federal government, will now regulate all elections nationwide. That's got you having you pull your hair out. <laughs> yeah, I mean – they encroach in so many areas. I mean, the reason I mentioned education early and first is because just them getting their grubby little hands in education means that it's hard for the state to, you know, do vouchers and things like that. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, they, uh, here's the funny thing, though, about educating people. You can't really change people's minds, but, uh, you know, I, I ran for Congress once, and people love the Constitution. You talk to Democrats, they'll at least – feign deference to it you know they they'll say they love it um and it's just how we interpret it so we just have to explain to people that the constitution is the supreme law of the land everyone's you know sworn or affirmed to to uh uphold it as a as a legislator and executive and then we just explain hey you love the constitution but guess how it has to be interpreted it has to be interpreted based on what the original intent was of the founders, what the words meant when the founders wrote it, because if we don't interpret it that way, then the, the words mean nothing. If I'm Webster, let's say we're using Webster's def, uh, dictionary definition, I can just say that, you know, that murdering someone actually means, you know, stealing their cheese or, you know, whatever I want to do. You can't define something a legal document can't be defined by change the the words that change meaning. There's, it's not a legal document then. It has no force. So I don't know. Somehow we have to, you know, make people realize, you know, we know that a lot of people love the constitution. We just have to have them realize it's very powerful and it needs to be used in the right way and why it needs to be used that way. That's exactly right. You know, the Supreme court, one of the Supreme court justices, I think it was Clarence Thomas, 
uh, he talked about this, you know, uh, in a speech he'd given, and uh, he talked about the fact that maybe we on the Supreme Court, maybe we should not worry too much about precedent, about uh, rulings. You know, maybe we should look to the original document and not count so much on the on the precedent of previous rulings. And it was just an idea he threw out there, but boy, did it stir up in the legal world. It stirred up a, a, a firestorm of of, uh, of conversation. Let me tell you. Yeah, couldn't think, couldn't think of a more obvious you, way to interpret things. Exactly. Let's stop <laughs> looking at the precedent. What What if the prior court got it wrong? <laughs> yeah, and they only yeah, know, people it, think, oh, they can't it, overturn Roe v. Wade. People think they can't overturn Roe v. Wade, but guess what? The Supreme Court does overturn themselves sometimes, so they could overturn Roe v. Wade too. Yeah, yeah like prohibition. Well, I'm going to well, Curtis, I'm refer people back to our show this past Friday when we had Morgan Magnet on. Uh, with his book about uh, Clarence Thomas and how Clarence Thomas has been laying the foundation for the Supreme Court in the future to do those very things. By his dissenting and uh, assenting arguments, he's been laying the foundation saying this is where the Supreme Court got it wrong in the past, and this is the way our founders wanted the Constitution to be interpreted. So it's being subtly done. In the background, we see Trump doing his end with these regulations and departments, but yet we also see Clarence Thomas doing it with the Supreme Court. You know, it's at work. There is an undercurrent at work here in the nation. Uh, Eric? Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I'm excited. I I I mean, to me, I was I was my friend told me about Ron Paul. It took me essentially two speeches to get on board with him. The first speech, I thought he was crazy, but I. My thought is that he reignited a movement that has been an undercurrent, and I think I think we're still riding on that movement, and I think it is bubbling and growing stronger. But it's it's almost like we need a point person, like another Ron Paul, who can uh, who can, you know, just take the bull by the horns and and really keep inspiring more and more people. I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't sense that there's a Ron Paul type uh, sort of taking up uh, what what he stood for. I mean, there are types, but I'm saying that's someone is charismatic, and yeah. I, I thought that's exactly what Trump was doing, taking it one step further, though. Well, I, the, here's the thing with Trump. You know, I I appreciate a lot of what Trump's doing, but at the end of the day, um, I look at some of the decisions he makes, and I, and I do I do question whether he is 100% on board with the original intent of the Constitution, um, and you know, I, I hope he is. I think he would probably say he, he he was if we asked him, but it's a matter of, you know, getting people in place under him that understand it as well. Well, let me share this with you about President Trump and when it comes to the Constitution, okay? Um, President Trump has taken it upon himself since he's become president to learn much, much more than he ever thought he would need to about the Constitution, the Electoral College, the original intent. It's something that he has taken upon himself to understand 
and get advisors around him that understands the, the liberty and freedom that was talked about in the Constitution, the framing documents. Now, that being said, you know, one of the big things that when I'm fighting this fight against the national popular vote that the left likes to throw around and Charles and Michael Steele, yes, that Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, he's working for the national popular vote movement. Um, he, he previously, now when I say he, I mean President Trump, Donald Trump, has previously talked that the Electoral College is something he would support in a democracy. I mean, uh, that, that the national popular vote is something he would support in a democracy. And then he later tweeted out that the Electoral College is bad for democracy and all that stuff. So recently he has put out two separate tweets in conjunction with one another explaining that he now understands the reason for the Electoral College. And he understands why it was put into place, and he fully supports the Electoral College. If the national popular vote had been the rule at the time, he would have campaigned differently, mainly in California and New York City. Yeah, that's what he said. So that's something, you know, I've gotten to a lot of people around him. I have contacts to a lot of people around him that's close to him. And one of the things I tell every one of them that will listen is we're not a democracy. If we were a democracy, Hillary Clinton would be president. And that wakes them up. Yeah. If we, I mean, if we, um, you know, sort of look at what down and what went down and what, what could go down, I, I, I think the, the question really is what's our best alternative? Do I think Trump's perfect? Do I think he has as much constitutional sense as Ron Paul? Maybe not. But like you said, he's learning and he's growing, and that's amazing. But what are we up against in 2020? Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty scary prospects if, if, if it's up against one of these Democrats that I see running. So, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, any question in my mind that we need Trump to win in 2020, assuming he's up against uh, one of these Democrats. And hopefully he'll just keep getting wiser and learning about the Constitution even more for another four years. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, and, and that, that believe me. Yes, indeed. Well, it seems that so, you know, Camilla Harris's. I was going to say Camilla Harris's ex-lover was predicting that it's going to be Camilla Harris and better judge, better judge, whatever his name is, as vice president. That would be an interesting ticket going up against Trump's head. You know, you got the circus on one side and America on the other side. So it's going to be a very electoral, uh, interesting electoral season. Go ahead, Bob. Yes, yes, it is. Very much so. Very much so. So uh, how are we doing on time, Ann? Um, we've got ourselves about 25 more minutes left. Um, because we were, t- I wanted to get in with you, and I want Eric's uh, input also on this HR one because you were the one that turned me on to this uh, thing. Uh, tell us about it and why we should be absolutely frightened about what they're trying to pull. Because Eric, this pulls directly into your book, Liberation Day, the overstepping of of power in not just House of Representatives but also Congress. Uh, the executive office, the judicial branch, 
as well as the deep state that sits out there outside of these branches, just in the shadows. Mm-hmm. Please, Bobby, tell us about H.R. 1. Yeah, H.R. 1, in essence, takes and federalizes all national elections. So you would have the Senate uh, would be a national election, you know, would, would, would be uh, run by the, the national, the federal government for each state. You know, you'd have the, the, all the U.S. House of Representatives seats would be ran by the, by the federal government. And, of course, the presidential elections would happen at a, at a federal level. Again. And what it does is it, 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 it is the, it's the largest attack on state sovereignty in American history. You know, the 50 states, the 50 sovereign states elect the president. The 50 sovereign states elect their own representation based on their own laws. And the federal government, just imagine if you had a president, imagine all the corruption. It's a corrupt election. You have to have corruption happen at the same time, the same way, in 50 different states in multiple locations. If, if you had a national popular vote, you, you would only have to do it in some of your key, state, your key cities, like Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, Dallas, and Los Angeles County. And just that, those four or five locations, you could control the outcome of who, who gets elected president every single time. So, and they know that. So, hey, let's do this. Let's do this for every. For every election at the federal level, you know that's and basically I'm not saying that they're going to have a national popular vote for your state senator, but what they're going to do is they're going to create all the rules. They're going to you know make everything be accountable to the federal government instead of at the state level. And Bobby, that, I got a just, comment on this. Yeah, go ahead. I got a comment on this because I pulled it up on Wikipedia, and there's a full title for this act. It says an act to expand Americans' access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, and strengthen <laughs> ethics rules for public servants and for other purposes. <laughs> they even admit it's for other purposes that they're not going to specify. And listen to this. To, to expand Americans' access to the bo- ballot box, if anything, it's to control it. To reduce the influence of big money, I can only imagine it would increase the influence of big money. That's the whole thing with the Electoral College. It, it reduces the influence of big money. And strengthen ethics rules for public servants, uh, it's just – it's very – yeah, that's very silly and scary. <laughs> silly as in stupid. Right. Now, let me ask well, you this. Can I answer redundant questions? Hang on, man. Hang on, man. Okay, go ahead. Well, my redundant question is, do our civil servants – have ethical rules? I don't think so. It's like an oxymoron. Civil servants and ethics. It ain't, oh, politicians and ethics. They, it's oxymoron <laughs> to the ultimate name. Exactly, exactly. So let me walk I you through this, Ann. have strong ethics rules if you go back right. uh, 200 yep. years. Yeah. Folks, 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 don't get caught in the circus, okay? Bread and circus, bread and circus. Don't get caught in the circus. We're doing real work here now. Okay, listen. Remember, Ann, I, I, I texted you HR2? Remember that? Yeah. I could not find it. Could not yes. find it. And, and say that again. You could not find it. And you texted me that yeah. back, didn't you? Did I respond yeah. to that? Did I respond to HR2? I you texted saying you couldn't find it. 
I did not respond. No, That's correct. That's correct. I did not respond for a reason. Now, HR1 is, is what we've been talking about. HR2 has been reserved at the speaker's request for whatever she may introduce. Oh. So that's an open bill number. That's what happens if they get HR2 passed. What's going to happen with H- or HR1? Guess what's going to happen with HR2? The, the shoe's going to fall. Ranked choice voting. All kinds of things. Whatever they want to throw in there. Okay? Which this is a methodical plan that is being perpetrated right before our very eyes. And when I said bread and circus, you could actually Google that term. And bread, I, I encourage anyone to look at it right now. Bread and circus. Google it. It's what the Romans did to the people. They gave them the circus of the Colosseum. They had bread, cheese, and wine, and, it, and then they could do whatever they wanted. The leadership, the power, the power brokers, because the people were entertained and their bellies were full. The bread and circus, keep them involved in the, in the circus, keep their minds off their empty bellies, and they won't care what we do. And that is what they did. So when we look at a lot of the things that's in the news cycle right now, the Mueller investigation, this whole thing about Acosta, you know, the, the thing, everything that you're looking at that you see on the news streams is all bread and circus. What's happening behind the curtain? What's happening behind the closed doors? Donald Trump is seating more judges than any other president, save George Washington, he's changing the face of the judiciary for the next 50 years. Donald Trump is stripping power away from the bureaucracy. He's exposing the Democrats for what they truly are. Donald Trump is doing everything he can within the people's belief and understanding of what is achievable in today's political environment. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Can he do more? Can he go further? Does he understand the Constitution? You bet your ass he does. Can he do more? No, he can't because he's got to do certain things. That's like this whole thing with lock her up. This whole thing with why isn't Trump arresting people? Why isn't the why aren't Peter Strzok in jail? Why is James Comey walking around free? Okay, and I explain it to people. You've got two years, and then Donald Trump could potentially he gets elected, he's sworn in. You've got two years where he could lose the House and lose the Senate. Statistically speaking, it's, it's more than likely that he was going to lose the House and the Senate. Okay? So what happens to his inquiries and his investigations? In the first two years, he starts indicting people. He loses the House. He loses the Senate. Guess what? It goes nowhere. So it's a methodical plan. Donald Trump needs to expose these people. He needs to expose the cabal to the American public. So that when, and then we'll see what happens in the midterm elections. We we kept the Senate moving forward. Now he can still keep seating judges. Now he can still keep seating Supreme Court justices. Now we can start to do the indictments. He's got 2020 in the bag. Save any voter fraud. He's got 2020 in the bag. Look at the idiots that are trying to unseat him. Okay, so now he's got six years. If you start indicting Hillary Clinton and Peter Strzok. And Lisa Page and, and Dean Comey 
and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, if you start indicting these people, you've got two years worth of discovery. You've got two years for a trial. You've got two years for a sentencing structure. Okay? This is where we're at. It's a 10-year plan to restore personal liberty, individual freedom, and the rule of law back to Washington, D.C. and the country. And Donald Trump knows that. Folks, we're playing a long game here. We have to win every election, whether it's for dog catcher, the Board of Education, the local sheriff, we have to win every election, every time, from now on, and for at least the next 10 years, to restore this country. We have to do it. We don't have a choice. Well, my question to you, both Bob and uh, Eric, do you think Trump is setting this up for the next six years to allow Mike Pence to step in and run for two terms after he leaves? Is he setting everything up, the stage setting up, to bring conservatism back to the forefront so that the American public is ready for Mike Pence? Uh, Bob, take that first, and then let Eric. Mike Pence, what is Mike Pence politically? How is he viewed as the public? He's viewed as the calm statesman, correct? Is that correct? Correct. He's he's the calm, steady hand. All right? Donald Trump is going to go in there and upset the apple cart, right? We elected him to give Washington, D.C. the middle finger, and he did. After Donald Trump shakes things up, guess who's got to put it all back together? The calm, steady hand. Eric Trump or Mike Pence? Mark my Mike words. Moore, I'm Mike not wrong Pence about very many things. Yeah, I'm not wrong I about very many things, Mike folks. <laughs> Mike Pence. I, I don't see Eric yeah. Trump, honestly, because the Trump name will do it. Eric, what's your opinion? Uh, you know, I'm just I'm just looking it up right now. I looked up uh, MikePence24.com. You can buy that right now for eleven ninety nine. Might be a nice domain name to buy. Um, and also Pence24.com <laughs> is is available for nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars right now. Also not a bad, you know, a bad choice to buy. But the fact that these are both for sale and Pence hasn't bought them, uh, I got to check MikePence.com. But he, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's on Mike Pence's radar. MikePence.com is taken. Uh, so, you know, I'm guessing it's. It, it, it's it's possible. I just haven't gotten that vibe. I'm, I'm not saying it's not in the works. I'm just saying I haven't personally gotten the vibe that it's going to be Mike Pence for sure. Exactly. Exactly. It's too far out. It's too far out. It's too far out. But what, what my comments are, my comments are speaking to, if you look back in history, I love to study history. Look back in history. The pendulum swings. Ladies and gentlemen, the pendulum swings. We had Barack Obama. We had Bill Clinton. We had a Bush. We had a Bush. We had you know, it swings back and forth and back and forth. We had Barack Obama. Now we have Donald Trump. One hated America. One loves it more than can be measured. One hated America, and and went around the globe saying that he did. Apologized for us. We couldn't say God bless America. We couldn't say Merry Christmas. And then we have Donald Trump. God bless America, and I'm going to say Merry Christmas, whether you like it or not. 
and the pendulum swings. <laughs> guess what? The pendulum swings back after eight years. Guess what happens? We've got to have a calm, level-headed statesman. That's what's going to be next. Folks, I'm sharing this with you. I'm not wrong. Here in Pennsylvania, folks know me very, very well. And across the country, mainly New York and a couple of big cities. I've got a huge following. 14.2 million Facebook followers in one 28-day period. 3.2 million reactions to my posts in one 28-day period. So, and I'm wrong very strongly about political things. This is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. We're going to look for the common level-headed statesman after Trump. Because Donald Trump is, you haven't seen nothing yet, believe me. This has all been setting the stage for the show to come. Wait till he's a lame duck president. Well, Just wait. Well, you got your popcorn I, I, and your hat. Get your night clothes on, well, your popcorn and your hat. Uh, it's going to be the show of a lifetime. Popcorn, huh? Especially with, with this Democratic cabal <laughs> out there. Yep. Put your onesies on, grab your snuggie. And get some popcorn and, and some a good something to drink to sit down with your significant other and watch the show because 2020 it's going to start. Believe me. I believe you're right. Absolutely. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. Man. That's just like hey, we're down, we're I don't show. Our, Go ahead. Well, we're down to our last 11 minutes here, and uh, Bobby, I'm telling people to go check out your website, Protect Your Vote USA. And this national popular vote is very, very scary. And thanks to you and Charlie Kirk of uh, Turning Point USA, we're starting to push back. We're starting to see some states trying to reverse these compact resolutions. I know with your help, when you would let me know about what was going here in South Carolina, we were able to stop it here. It doesn't mean it's permanently stopped because, folks, this legislation, they'll show for a little while. Then they'll bring it back when you think that you're not paying attention. Oh, so we have to stay vigilant. The left stays Democrats vigilant. We have to stay just as vigilant. Absolutely. And, Eric, what you point out in your book is that how our Constitution has been distorted and how we have allowed our freedoms and liberty to be eroded little bit by little bit. Um, I don't think we can do 23 executive orders in 24 hours. I don't see that happening. But you give people something to think about, and maybe one by one we can start taking 250 agencies you can say that can be dismantled. Uh, things can be brought back to the state, and state sovereignty would then reign supreme over federalism. You guys both have fantastic ideas and fantastic uh, ways of expressing it. And, Bobby, I'm telling people, you've got to be involved in your website. We've got to stop this. Yep, it's protectyourvoteusa.org. Protectyourvoteusa.org. Or you can find us on Facebook at Protect Your Vote. The group has about 6,000 members in it. Join up and, and help us fight. That's what's coming down the pike. Yep. Yeah, so, we need warriors. You know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's unbelievable. You know, Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams, I believe, is from South Carolina, correct? No, Georgia, please. Shame on oh, you. Oh, Georgia. Right, Georgia, Georgia. Georgia. Okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's good. Um, so, folks, yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's huge, you know. What's what's coming down the pike? I mean, I'll just give you, for instance, about my 
about something I pointed out to a few folks. Do you all remember the letter that was printed in the New York Times? It was an insider in the Trump administration that basically lambasted President Trump and his foreign policy. Remember that letter from anonymous source? It was oh, printed yeah. in the Yeah, yeah. It was from someone yeah, on yeah. the inside, supposedly. Someone on the inside, supposedly. So that I, I had warned some folks that that was coming down. About two weeks before that, I had seen on, on a friend of mine's telephone, they showed me some pictures of some documents that had some names on it. It was written in ink pen. And the names on it were very interesting. So I Googled them, and I found some things that said Mattis 2020. And I thought, well, okay, let me do some more digging. So I did some more digging, and I found out that Mattis and and Kelly had gone to a couple of different consulting groups inside of D.C. and had done some polls on how how well – Mattis would would go against Donald Trump in 2020, and then I googled it, and I found I googled something else, and I found out that there were 20,000 and one T-shirts that said Mattis 2020 that were purchased and shipped to Washington D.C. Hmm. And then I found some Facebook groups that said Mattis 2020. So I surmised. That Jim Mattis and and John Kelly, the chief of staff, their lifetime, their service in the White House was short. And then the next day after that letter, here comes Donald Trump tweeting a letter from Jim Mattis of support for Donald Trump, the president, and another letter from John Kelly tweeting support for the president. And then lo and behold, a few weeks later, Mattis is no longer there, and Kelly announces that he's leaving. And then it starts to hit the mm-hmm. news cycle. Everything that I had discovered and found out. So, folks, when I when I tell you when I tell you things that that I see coming, it's it's because I've done an awful lot of research and I have a tremendous intuition about things. And and that's not something that I say. That's what my followers tell me. That's what the folks here in Pennsylvania tell me. And. Uh, Folks, we we have got one hell of a fight coming up in 2020. We have got one hell of a fight coming up over the next 10 years to save our republic. And we've got to be ready for it through knowledge, understanding, and sharing that with our friends. We can keep this country great. We can restore personal freedom and individual liberty. We have but to talk about it, learn about it, and take action. Thank you all very much. It's been a wonderful well, Bobby, thank you for being with us. You and Eric are both in the same state of Pennsylvania, correct, Eric? I think you're also in the Philadelphia area. I'm in Eric? York. Yep, yep, just south of Harrisburg, York, north of Baltimore. Well, so I'm in Franklin County, and what's the people away? You know, liberty and freedom were born right here. Liberty and freedom and the Constitution was born right here in Pennsylvania. It's up to the people in Pennsylvania to lead this fight. We've got to do it. Does that make sense, Eric? The two of you should hook up. Yep. I think so. Yeah, we all. I mean, I think, think we all got to do it. Be a great team. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank both of you for 
We want to thank both of you for joining us. Eric, I'm telling people to check out your book. They can click on the link on the show page, go to Amazon, and get Liberation Day National Empowered Constitution. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. And, Bobby, you know it's always a pleasure to have you on here. Your site, Protect Your Vote USA, as well as the Facebook page, Protect Your Vote. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us, and have a great evening. Thank thank you very much. much. I really appreciate it. Bobby, I'll see you in a couple of weeks in Norman Beach. Right on. We'll see you there. All right. Take care. All right. Bobby Lawrence, Protect Your Vote USA, and Eric Martin. Uh, Liberation Day. Check it both out. The links are on the show page. Curtis, we will be back here uh, next week. Um, I know I have some guests lined up. I don't have it up on the uh, show page yet, but we're starting to line up some really great guests coming on for the rest of this month and going in to the end of the summer season. Um, I want to tell everyone, thank you everyone for your well wishes while I was out on the Meet the Weather. I'm feeling so much better. I uh, got a nice clean the bill for my bill of health for my cardiologist this week. But we'll be back uh, next week, uh, same time, same bat station. And Curtis, uh, <laughs> man, you sat there in the quiet in the background. You let me run my mouth. Holy moly. I was so. learning. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> I was like, cool, Mike, just chilling. Well, <laughs> I want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room here on Black Talk Radio, as well as that was up on Facebook and YouTube, uh, as well as also in the studio, those that called in. So I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, and hope I don't get arrested at the counter protest we are going to have (laughs) just a couple Mm. of miles down outside my door. Uh, So I may need bail, Curtis. I'll give you a call. So until then, yep. I say good night and God bless. <laughs> <laughs>